With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Starting now, U.S. Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn provides his first-hand account of the January 6, 2021 Capitol riot. I'm guessing that Harry Dunn didn't expect to be here today. I'm also guessing that he didn't expect to be on the speaking circuit, let alone write a book. And he's been saying in interviews he'd rather be unknown. He didn't, at first, he didn't at first expect to be a police officer on the congressional beat. More on that later. Most of all, he didn't expect to be on the front line. And he didn't, he didn't even expect to don a badge. He actually thought of something different, like football. More of that later. He didn't expect to be on the front lines battling his fellow Americans spurred on as the Congressional Bipartisan January 6th Committee, whom he testified before, found were inspired by former President Donald Trump to stage a violent insurrection of the U.S. Capitol in a failed attempt to overturn a free and fair U.S. presidential election. But what Harry, what Harry Dunn did in becoming a police officer, protecting Congress, which is where we first crossed paths during my time covering Congress. Officer Dunn defended the Capitol on January 6, 2021, along with his colleagues, some of whom died. But a, but a presidential citizens and the Congressional Gold Medal later ended up paying a heavy price that he's still coping with today. But he decided to turn his traumatic experience into a platform to speak out about mental health, and democracy, and write a book called Standing My Ground, a Capitol Police officer's fight for accountability and good trouble after January 6. So let's welcome Harry Dunn to the National Thank you. <laughs> but we'll talk about your, your upbringing and, and mental health. Did you want to start a national conversation about mental health? And, and specifically, there's been a lot of discussions about how mental health is not openly and passionately and warmly discussed in the African-American community, especially among African-American men. I mean, who wants to admit that they're effed up, you know? So I guess that's one of the reasons why the conversation doesn't happen. Yes, I want to have a national discussion about it. Um, but there's nothing new that can be said to encompass the importance of it's nothing new. Like there's no new phrases or, you know, no new hashtags. We just need more people saying it. More people need to, I guess, the, you know, the phrase gets thrown around all the time, normalize this, normalize that. But, you know, more people just it's literally a part of our everyday life. It's literally a part of our everyday life. So more people just need to be opening and accepting. But I understand why people aren't. This world is really cruel. You know, people love to kick you while you're down or, you know, take a picture of somebody struggling instead of helping that person. That's the world that we live in. So it's easy to 
go with the, the norms that have been happening, and it's hard to do the opposite, to go against it. I just don't care what anybody else thinks. That's why I am able to mm -hmm. do, to show this vulnerability, whatever. And speaking of vulnerability, you were pretty raw in this book. Yeah. In terms of opening yourself up to all the rage, all the things that were coming, uh, that you were experiencing, not just as a result of January 6th, your childhood, all of it. What kind of feedback have you been getting uh, from your, not just your friends, yeah. but total strangers? Uh, I wonder if, if has anybody said, hey, you've helped me, uh, you've helped me seek help, or anything of that nature? <laughs> well, let's share a funny little story of feedback. My, my father, he read the book, he said, why do you cuss so much? In <laughs> yes, the book I is for that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, My parents didn't raise me like that, correct, but they also didn't raise me to deal with an insurrection and everything else that followed behind. Yeah, um, yeah so, they, they, that wasn't in the parents. Yeah, that wasn't in the parents. Uh, but, you know, I, I had to share how I really feel, and I, you know, pulled the curtain back all the way, and that's the way I feel. You know, I'm not going to say, I say, Jiminy Crickets. This is, whoops, man. You know, <laughs> that's not, that's not who I, that's not, <laughs> that's not who I am. Um, you know, I, I'm able to articulate my, people will say, well, you curse a lot, you have a limited vocabulary. Now, I got pretty good vocabulary, but sometimes those words just bring it home. Um, but no, but to, yes, I've gotten good feedback, and um, I actually got a message from a coworker. Tuesday night uh, after they saw my message on my interview on The View and um, this person is no longer with the force because of January 6th, not physically, just emotionally can't do the job anymore and they said that they um, they struggle getting out of bed every morning and um, seeing me still fight, even if sometimes by myself and just to tell the truth or inspire people or it makes it easier for them to get out of bed. And my response to them, like, that's what it's all about. You know, I I was telling Meredith on the way in here that um Meredith is your Meredith, publicist. My publicist. Hey, hey Meredith. Um I got a, a text from a coworker that at work right now and people just wanna they just say that the shooting that happened last night in Maine and he just wanted to talk to me about it. And like, how did I become this person that you just want to talk to? But before all this, it was just sports and, you know, new music. But now, you know, just getting that message from people that want to open up about any and everything. And that's, it's rewarding because it lets me, one, it lets me know that I'm not the only one that are having these feelings. And I guess that's what makes them okay because they're having these feelings and they feel like they're not the only one either. So. Hmm. There's another part of this you, you just raised about reaction and talk about a coworker. What kind of reaction have you received in the law enforcement community? Talk about that. And because you, you told in a previous conversation as we were prepping that you were speaking before the National Organization for Black Law Enforcement yeah. uh, officers and, and so forth. What has it been mixed? Good, bad, it, it ugly, is, talk it, about it that. It is as divided as this country is. It is as divided as this country is. Um, on January 6th, there was actually a police officer, active police officer from Chicago who got charged, and the FOP's lawyers represented him in court after January 6th. 
And obviously, you know, we cap the Capitol Police had an individual charged um, with, uh, well, I don't really know exact charges, but he was telling an individual that he agreed with what happened and, you know, you need to delete this off your social media. So, yeah, it's been, but I get messages all the time from coworkers, yo, keep it up. Bro, I don't know how you do it. Keep going. So it's definitely mixed. Um, Has anybody ever called you a, a, a traitor or betrayal or anything? That no, they much? say I'm clout seeking clout. You know, you're seeking clout and you're doing this because of stuff. all the media appearances. Mm -hmm. Every single time that I've gotten awards or on TV, all I do is acknowledge my coworkers. So for anybody to say that, that's 100% disingenuous. It's wrong because all I do is uplift my coworkers. I don't speak negative about them and I you know, try to sh share the spotlight and give them the opportunities that I've been blessed with. Um, but it's definitely been mixed. It's as divided as this country. Another part of the book, you try to lay out a bunch of histor history nuggets out there. Yeah. What were you trying to, to do in, 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 in sort of planting those historical seeds? In short, to say this ain't nothing new. This stuff's been happening for years. I mean, <laughs> at a coming back from the, the view last night, I was talking to the driver. And thank you for appearing on my employer's network. <laughs> of course, of course. Um, but we were talking about, you know, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, and, you know, life, liberty, and property is what he started with it. And that saying has been around for a while. Um, black people, when they say all men are created equal, um, they were talking about black people and all men are created equal. Because at that time, black people were considered property. So all men are created equal didn't apply to black people at that time. Whether, you know, you could splice it up how you would. That's the actual fact of it. Or women. Or, co correct. That's, yeah. Um, and I talk, I talk about that in the book. Um, but this ain't nothing new. These people are in, felt this entitlement Donald Trump still doesn't think he did anything wrong. The people who attacked the Capitol think they did. They didn't think they do anything wrong. It's that sense of entitlement that's existed because of our history that they've been emboldened by their history. Our history. It's not our. It's all of our history, um, and that still rears his ugly head today. It still exists today. Um, but that's the that's the point of bringing up those historical events that this ain't nothing new. But that but that historical event, those historical events collectively also dip into deeply. And you talk about it a little bit about the Michael Harriet discussion yeah. into the issue of race. On a number of interviews, you have stated squarely that the January 6th insurrection was not a racist act. I'm going to challenge you on that. Okay. Why? I don't think that they got together and said, well, let me back up. My white coworkers got their ass whooped too. So it, that's why I don't think it was a racist-fueled event. There were racists there, a lot of them. But I don't think the premise of that, the premise of that day was entitlement. And they wanted to disenfranchise and say, yo, no. Y'all ain't win. We did. Y'all are lying. That's what that day was about. Now, a lot of racists believe that, but I don't believe that it was, 
you know. And also, anytime you bring up, why are you using the race card? And this it just is what it is. It's a part of our history. It's a part of, not even, it's a part of our current history that's going on now. So. Undisputed King Oriental James. You heard that? Race card. The race card. The King. Randall James, Catherine Massey Book Club, Context of White Supremacy. We are the Biography Kings. Today's date, Thursday, January 21, 2023. So I have been told new book. And in fact, I can tell you, I was hesitant about new book. I always give myself time to waffle about what book we're going to select. But our program this past Tuesday... I mentioned the great John Lewis. I was indecisive about whether or not to read this book. I opened and the preface quote from John Lewis. I did not look any further. Fuller says sometimes the creator sends messages that are just for you. Now, beyond all of that, the cows remains the metronome. We will be reading brand new starting today, Harry Dunn's Standing My Ground, a Capitol Police Officer's Fight for Accountability and Good Trouble after January 6th. And when I say brand new, this is Hot Off the Presses, published October 24, 2023. Always enjoy reading books that are new, timely, uh, so that we can be discussing. And this book is pretty short, but we will be reading this book January 6, 2024, election season, no less. And good old former President Donald Trump, his name is not on the ballot in the state of Colorado. Why? Because of what happened on January 6th. Other states looking to do the same. The land of Reb and Dill. Amazing. Anyway, the introduction that was the author, Mr. Dunn, speaking with Jeff Ballou, both black males, victims of white supremacy. I thought it was so important. The section where Mr. Dunn was talking about how Negroes do not apply. They do not count. Uh, the whole uh, men are created equal all of that is for white people and Mr. Ballou had to interject and say uh, that didn't apply to women either or women I said you got to put the white in front of the women if you're going to say all of that because black females obviously are not included in that obviously that's who you're talking about is or white women just saying accuracy uh, Thomas in New York took the exact same opinion that Mr. Harry Dunn did racism white supremacy had nothing to do with what took place January 6 2021 racists were there but this was not about racism Mr. Dunn's evidence was hey some of my white co-workers got their hind parts kicked that day too we did just speak with Cindy Intrican, white woman 
She talked about her white grandfather brawling with white Klansmen in Kansas. They burned down his establishment. It wasn't because her grandfather was a crusader and cared about the Negra. They had a difference of opinion about baked goods. In fact, some of his friends were in the Klan. And then they made a truce and got him a new bar and everything moved forward great. White people get along somehow to a degree. <laughs> but the white people, racists, fight and brawl with other racists, white people. That is also a long part of our history as well. Some of that in the Civil War, in fact. Any hoodles, we will get to it. But keep that in mind. January 6th. Is that related to racism, white supremacy? Context of white supremacy. Catherine Massey Book Club. Harry Dunn's Standing My Ground. Hachette Audio presents Standing My Ground, a Capitol Police officer's fight for accountability and good trouble after January 6th. Written by Harry Dunn with Ron Harris. Read by Harry Dunn. I am one of the few recognizable faces and voices from January 6th. I dedicate this book to the men and women who answered the inconceivable call of duty and public service that day, whose voices, faces, and names you may never know. Get in good trouble, necessary trouble, and redeem the soul of America. John Lewis Prologue. We need to talk about our trauma. Yes, you and me. You may not think you're experiencing it, but you are. Ask yourself, what has this nation been arguing over for the past two years? What conversation has been dominating the media and the government, occupying our courts and our daily conversations, and even separating friends and families? What is the subject we promise ourselves to avoid with strangers? January 6, 2021. That's what the dictionary says trauma is, a deeply distressing or disturbing experience. Trust me, I looked it up. The ripples from that day still threaten our democracy, the lives of election workers, the backbone of our electoral systems are being threatened online via hundreds of messages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by those who would disrupt our elections. Watch your back. I know where you sleep. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Because I speak out about these challenges to our democracy, I get the same threatening messages. We know where you live. 
Domestic terrorists have shot out the electrical power systems for neighborhoods, and they are threatening to do the same for entire cities. Representatives in Congress continue to lie and claim our election system is rigged. Yes, we are still struggling with that day. The only difference between your January 6th trauma and mine is where we were when we experienced it. I was at the Capitol, immersed in a profane mix of sweat, screams, shrieks, anger, fear, blood, death, broken limbs, spit, hatred, horror, racism, bigotry, and heroism. Capitol and DC police officers fought hand to hand. Many of us thought we were going to die. Some of us did. We were cursed, doused with bear and pepper spray and beaten with sticks, pipes, batons, shields, bike racks, and even the American flag. Donald Trump, then the nation's commander in chief, did nothing to help us for three hours. Even after politicians, his friends, and his own children begged him to. Instead, Capitol and Washington DC police officers battled alone. We fought for our lives, the lives of fellow officers and the nation's elected leaders. It didn't matter if they were Republican. We didn't care if they were Democrat or independent. They were the men and women we sent to Washington to govern our nation. It was our duty to protect them and our democracy. We could have run away. We could have said, we didn't sign up for this, but we did sign up for it. We just never imagined it like that. Hundreds of Capitol and DC police officers are still working through the physical and emotional scars of that day. All of us have changed. Some of us physically can no longer do the job. Others are haunted daily by what happened, including me. I still struggle with PTSD post-traumatic stress disorder. But as I tell you about my struggle that day, I want you to remember this. While I'm one of the officers whose job it was to protect the Capitol, like you, I'm first an American citizen who cares about this country and wants to see it do right. I'm a voter, a tax-paying citizen. This is my country, and I deserve to know the truth to make sure this doesn't happen again. We all do, just like I was marked by that day. You were too. You glared at your TV screen or listened to your radio in disbelief. You felt something you had never felt before, the shock and fear that someone was trying to take over your country. You and I had seen lots of demonstrations before at the nation's capital, many of them much bigger than this one. The original March on Washington for jobs and freedom in 1963, Veterans for Peace, the Million Man March, the Women's March on Washington, pro-choice rallies, anti-abortion demonstrations, gun control, gun rights. Every issue you can think of, from gay rights to immigration, to climate change, to the minimum wage, to saving the whales. Americans with different agendas have been coming to the Capitol for more than 150 years to tell their elected leaders what's on their mind. It's my job and the job of my fellow officers to protect them, no matter what their agenda. We are Americans, 
And as Americans, we have those rights. Freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. This is not Iran or Russia or Venezuela. This is not one of those countries where citizens are beaten, shot, killed, or disappeared for expressing their beliefs, their desires, or their dissatisfaction. But this time, you were shocked because what you saw is not what Americans do. You looked on as thousands of Americans tried to kill or maim hundreds of other Americans. So-called American patriots brutally beat the men and women in blue they claimed to hold in such high regard. Protect the blue, they preached. Blue lives matter. They did this so they can get inside to attack our elected officials. They wanted to hang Mike Pence or drag that motherfucker through the streets. Another said she and her friend were looking for House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to shoot her in the friggin' brain. They said they were there to stop the will of the people and halt our 224-year history of the peaceful transfer of power. These weren't the international thugs and foreign terrorists of the movies trying to take over our country. Instead, these were people from our own communities, store owners, clerks, waiters, doctors, lawyers, IT specialists, real estate agents, CEOs, veterans, and service members, police officers, accountants, retirees, and construction workers. Thousands of them screaming, spitting hate, and all with allegiance to one man, Donald Trump. After a while, some of you had to turn away. You couldn't watch any longer. You couldn't stomach what you were seeing because you just couldn't believe this was happening. Not in America. Neither could I, even as I was battling insurrectionists and protecting our leaders. I've been thinking about that day a lot in terms of raw carnage, blood, guts, and destruction, you and I have seen much worse. For decades, we viewed the bloodied, mauled, and maimed bodies of our American sons and daughters, chewed up by war, strewn across some faraway battlefield. Korea, Vietnam, Iran, the Persian Gulf, Somalia, Lebanon, Iraq, Afghanistan. We've seen the images of flag-covered coffins come home for heartbreaking ceremonies. The survivors with physical and mental injuries are daily reminders of their sacrifices. We watched as our cities burned from the 1960s to the 1990s, torn apart by racial injustice and strife, and as hundreds of mostly black people were shot and killed by police and the National Guard Washington, New York, Chicago, Detroit, Newark, Memphis, Atlanta, Los Angeles, Baltimore, Houston, Miami. More than 120 cities alone erupted after Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in 1968. Meanwhile, every year for the past 22 years, we have relived 9-11. We revisit that horrible footage of thousands of Americans who perished in the World Trade Center after our enemies crashed jetliners into the buildings. We watch people so helpless, so terrified that they leap from windows to certain death 
we still weep for the first responders who perished trying to save them. And then we saw the murder of George Floyd. All of it was horrific, all of it unforgettable, but January 6th was different. This was a more vicious gut punch, one made even crueler because we didn't see it coming. The insurrectionists tried to destroy the very lifeblood of this nation, our democracy. This was not an attack on one piece of what we hold most dear, not one person, not one community, not one town, not one city. It was all our communities, all of us at the same time. It was everything we believe in. And a lot of you cried. I cried too. I cried that day when I was carrying a rioter who had been trampled by the mob to our medical unit for CPR. I was crying when I ran to Senator Mitch McConnell's side office door because we got a call that some of his staff had locked themselves in against the rioters and needed help. Almost from birth, we are told that our country is special because we have a democracy. It is where every man and woman has a right, no, a duty, to have a say in how it operates. We the people. Those are the first three words of the U.S. Constitution. We are told of its history and its founders, George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, Nathan Hale, Patrick Henry, the American Revolution. Yes, it wasn't perfect. Only white men who owned land could vote. And hundreds of thousands of people were excluded from the process because they were slaves. Still, we grew up proud that no kings or queens lorded over us. We have a government of the people, by the people, for the people. Our government has an even greater special significance for some of us. For African Americans, our belief in his promise has been almost like a religion. We needed to believe. We had to believe. We had no choice. This place wasn't right for us from the start. They brought us over in chains and changed our names and wiped out our culture, even before there actually was an America. But almost from its birth, we have been trying to get America to do what Martin Luther King said in 1963. Rise up. Live out the true meaning of his creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Our struggle for democracy has threaded through Crispus Attucks, the first person killed in the American Revolution. The trial before the Supreme Court for the men and women of the slave ship, La Amistad, the Dred Scott and Plessy v. Ferguson decisions, the Civil War, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, Brown v. the Board of Education, the Civil Rights Movement, and service by African Americans in every American war, even when our country didn't want us there. Immigrants felt a special pain that day too whether they came to America more than 100 years ago or just got here. America is the place on which they have penned their hopes and dreams. Some fled tyranny and persecution in their home countries, 
others left grinding poverty, and many religious or ethnic bigotry. When they searched for a better life, they were united in their belief in a place called America. They quickly learned that our streets weren't paved with gold. Yes, there was discrimination here, but it was the government's job to protect them, not persecute them. They could fight that government and challenge that government to do what's right. They could vote and their vote would matter. They could even be the government. Consequently, immigrants, the children of immigrants, and the grandchildren of immigrants are interwoven in our government and our culture. No, America didn't always live up to its promise. We've had some horrible things happen here, like when the nation locked Japanese citizens in internment camps during World War II. Still, nobody is jumping on boats to flee America like they're doing all over the world. Why? Because it's America. That's why January 6th hurt so much. It was a frightening wake-up call that our democracy, this thing we hold so precious, can be taken from us if we don't protect it. My fellow officers and I gave it our all on January 6th. We stood our ground. And because we did, our democracy is still standing. There are no tanks roaming our capital like in other nations after a coup. There is no martial law. There is no National Guard patrolling our streets. And I still stand, and I continue to fight. It is why I testified, along with three fellow officers, before the January 6th committee, so we can get to the bottom of what happened that day and what led up to it. It is why I testified in two trials of Oath Keepers to make sure their leaders were convicted and sentenced to prison. It is the same reason I have appeared on scores of news programs to talk about what happened. I don't do it because I want to be a celebrity. I do it because I want people to know what happened to me and my fellow officers and what almost happened to our nation. Some people appreciate what I have to say. I have received thousands of letters thanking me and urging me to keep moving forward. I get praised daily through social media. On the other hand, I have been vilified by folks like Tucker Carlson when he was at Fox News, Newsmax and MAGA fans, people who would sacrifice our democracy in their worship of Trump. I have been cursed and called profane names and my life has been threatened. I've even been accused of doing what I do for the public attention. If there's one thing that I want you to know about me, it's this. I would give everything back, the Congressional Gold Medal, the meeting and medal from President Biden, every media interview, every television appearance, my trial testimony, and my appearance before a congressional committee, if it would mean that January 6th never happened. I don't give a damn about any of those things. If January 6th hadn't happened, my fellow officers who lost their lives in the wake of that horrible day would be here to be loved by their families and friends and appreciated by other United States Capitol Police officers. If January 6th hadn't happened, I wouldn't have gone through the mental anguish that I did and that I am still working through with counseling. If January 6th hadn't happened, the place where I work wouldn't be filled with regret and bad memories around every corner 
If January 6th hadn't happened, I wouldn't be the subject of lies and ridicule all over the internet. I speak out not because I want something for me, but because I want accountability. I want the people responsible for that day, including Trump and anybody else who conspired to breach the Capitol and try to halt our democracy to pay a price, just like we paid a price. And I want us to never repeat a day like that. It is a stain on our nation. And if my detractors think I can somehow be scared away with their bullshit accusations and threats, they don't know me. They don't know Harry Dunn. I'll continue to use my voice to protect this country. I'll stand up to the lies and hate and racism and bigotry. I will always be standing my ground to make sure our democracy exists. And I'll ask that you stand with me so that nothing like this ever happens again. We will get through this trauma. We will get through this nightmare, but only if we stand together. Chapter One, Protecting Democracy. Most people don't really know what we do as Capitol Police. Before January 6th, many Americans probably didn't know we existed, and many still don't truly understand what we do, including my new friend, Michael Fanone. Mike is the former Washington, D.C. police officer who was seriously injured on January 6th while fighting alongside me and other officers to protect the Capitol. He joined the Capitol Police in the wake of the terrorist attacks on September 11th, 2001, because that's the kind of guy he is. He stayed in the role for a few years before becoming a D.C. police officer. At some point after January 6th, Mike erroneously said, Capitol Police were glorified security guards. Nothing could be further from the truth. The department didn't suit Mike because he wanted the adrenaline rush of being a street cop. Undercover drug busts, dramatic takedowns, and car chases with squealing tires. We can do that too, but that's not what we tend to do. In early 2023, for example, we were closing in on a car reported stolen not far from the Capitol and across the street from where members of Congress frequently hold television interviews. Two guys bolted from the car. We caught one right away. The other escaped into an apartment building and barricaded himself in a third floor unit. We contained the area and brought out our negotiations team. Ultimately, we dispatched the SWAT unit. The SWAT unit was literally seconds from breaching the door of the apartment when the second suspect surrendered after a seven hour standoff. Inside the car, we found a nine millimeter handgun that had been turned into a machine gun pistol and an M4 rifle like the one I carry at the Capitol. The rifle was a ghost gun, which means the parts were purchased online and put together without the rifle being registered. I am certified in M4 weaponry and carry my registered rifle while I'm on duty to protect people in and outside the Capitol. The weapons those guys had, however, are for committing crime. They can't be connected to an individual if they are recovered by law enforcement. So like I said, we have the capacity for that intense degree of law enforcement and more, but that's not our day to day. The Capitol Police 
have lots of capabilities, in part because we're a relatively large police department. No, we're not New York or Los Angeles or Chicago or even Atlanta. But according to the Justice Department, our 2,000 officers make us a far larger force than 90% of the nation's more than 12,200 local police departments and 3,000 sheriff's offices. Plus, we have all the machinery of most big city departments, in some cases, even more. The Capitol Police have motorcycle cops, cops in cars, and a canine unit. We have a riot control unit with all the special gear that big city departments have. We have a hazardous devices section, a hazardous material response team, special operations, and a crime scene search team. We have a containment and emergency response unit and a SWAT team. We have a crisis negotiation unit, reports processing team, court liaison unit, and special events section. I could go on, but I think you get the point. As a visitor to the Capitol, you seldom see members of those units. If you do, you've crossed into a bad space. The most visible element of the department is the Uniformed Services Bureau. That's guys like me. We are a 24-7 team of officers who provide security for the Capitol and Congressional Office buildings. Our protection area goes from as far as 8th Street on the north side, P Street on the south side, 7th Street on the east side, and 3rd Street on the west side. It is divided into the Capitol Division, which obviously is assigned to the entire Capitol, as well as a unit assigned to the House of Representatives, another to the U.S. Senate, and another that covers the Library of Congress. We provide security and protection to the members and staff at three Senate office buildings that run along Constitution Avenue, north of the Capitol. The Russell Senate Office Building, the Dirksen Senate Office Building, and the Hart Senate Office Building. We are also responsible for three buildings on Independence Avenue, south of the Capitol. Cannon House Office Building, the Longworth House Office Building, and the Rayburn House Office Building. These buildings house the members of the House of Representatives and their staff. To the untrained eye, a lot of what we do could appear to be the work of security guards. We screen visitors to the Capitol complex. We tamp down crime in and around the Capitol. We enhance relations with the community and its citizens as we help people find their way around a sprawling complex. What my friend Mike didn't understand is that while we do all the things other police departments do, our core mission is not to fight crime. Our mission is to protect, to prevent crime, and to provide a safe space for democracy to function. Our job is not to chase a crime after it happens, which is the primary function of most police departments. Our job is to keep it from happening. Think about it for a moment. Do you think people, foreign and domestic, haven't tried to shut down the Capitol and hold the nation hostage before January 6th? Do you think people with a grudge against a member of Congress or Senator haven't wanted to take one of them out? No. In October 1983, 
An Israeli visiting the United States entered the capital with two plastic bottles filled with the flammable liquid, gunpowder, and improvised shrapnel. The device was rigged to a detonator with copper wire. He planned to explode it where it could do the most damage. Four plainclothes Capitol Police officers stopped him before he could. A month later, in a bathroom in the Capitol, two American members of a communist organization assembled a bomb that detonated and caused extensive damage. Fortunately, no one was killed or injured. After an investigation, they were tried and imprisoned. In 1998, a man with a history of paranoid schizophrenia, which included being committed for nearly two months in a Montana hospital, triggered the metal detector at a Capitol entrance. He was carrying a gun. When Capitol Police approached him, he shot and killed one officer and then wounded a tourist and another officer. He ran into the office of a member of Congress and fatally shot a Capitol Police detective who was assigned to protect the member of Congress. Before dying, the detective shot the man four times. The gunman survived and was subdued and arrested by two other police officers. Several lives were saved by that Capitol Police detective. There are other examples, including the anthrax letters a terrorist sent to two senators in the Capitol following the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. Those, though, should be enough to help you understand that our job is to ensure that the women and men you sent to Washington to do your business have a safe place to do it, regardless of their party affiliation or politics. Yes, what they do is messy, it is complicated, and it is noisy. At times, it can be exasperating and tiresome. Still, it is the government we have chosen, so we protect them. We also make sure that when you or your church, mosque, synagogue, or other organization comes to the Capitol to have your voice heard, you are protected. Whether you come individually or in the tens or the hundreds or the thousands, you see us perform our job day after day, year after year. It's all so baked into our democracy that you hardly think about it. Let me give you two quick examples of what I'm talking about. In early 2023, Republicans bargained and shouted and called each other names while they voted 15 times over several days to decide whether Congressman Kevin McCarthy of California would be the new Speaker of the House of Representatives. While they did, no elected representatives could be sworn in as members of the 118th Congress. So, the House couldn't get to work. The media, some Democrats, and late-night talk show comedians made fun of them. But that was our democracy at work, going about his business, doing what it does. Now, here's where the Capitol Police come in. Congressional Republicans could hold that vote on January 7, 2023, because we provided a safe place for them to hash out their differences that was safe from protesters, extremists, and anyone else who would try to halt the process. Ironically, if Capitol Police officers had not shed blood to protect many of those same legislators 
from a rampaging mob at the Capitol on almost exactly the same date two years earlier, they may not have been able to cast those votes when they did. And many of the people in that room squabbling over whether McCarthy should be the speaker were some of the same 137 Republican members who voted to overturn the 2020 election. Two years earlier, even after we had put our lives on the line to protect it and them. But that's our job, regardless of party or politics. In September 2009, I was working my first huge demonstration. Barack Obama was the president. I had just been sworn in. I was probably only two weeks out of training. It was a normal autumn day, cool and cloudy but there was a sea of people outside the Capitol. There must have been 70,000 demonstrators. They filled up the West Lawn and spilled out onto the National Mall. The demonstration was called the Tea Party Express. The Tea Party was a conservative movement within the Republican Party that started right after Obama's first presidential inauguration. That day, people came from all over the country. I remember looking at the crowd and thinking, if these people decided to go into the Capitol, there's no way we could stop them. The event began as a demonstration against the Affordable Care Act, which by now, everyone was calling Obamacare. But it morphed into a demonstration against anything Obama. Some people were hollering about gun rights and singing God Bless America. But mostly, they were there protesting and cursing Obama. Some of them were chanting, Liar, 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 liar. Because that was what Representative Joe Wilson, a Republican from South Carolina, had called Obama three days earlier during his first State of the Union address. One person had a sign that called Obama the Parasite-in-Chief. Other people had signs that basically said he was a Black Adolf Hitler. In the crowd... One guy had a sign supporting Obamacare. The other people in the crowd didn't like that, and they began calling him names. They cursed him and basically called him a bum. Go get a job, you asshole, one of them shouted. You just want the government to take care of you, another said. Get a fucking job. The guy stood his ground and shouted back, I've got a job. I go to work every day but I can't get enough hours on my job to have health insurance. I kept my eyes on that guy to make sure he could protest without being attacked by other people in the group. They were loud and nasty, but they weren't a physical threat. That was my first real hint of what the Capitol Police's core function is. Like I said earlier, our job is to provide a safe place for democracy to take place. My job that day was to protect the Americans who came to Washington and wanted to curse the president and call the Congress names. At the same time, I needed to make sure that guy on the other side of the debate could have his opinion heard too. I didn't truly understand the depth of everything that was going on. I was young, just a few years out of college, but I was watching part of democracy at work. This wasn't some shit you read about in a history book. This wasn't a theory about how things are supposed to work. It was happening in the now, right in front of my eyes. 
This was democracy in action. These were real people being crazy passionate about what they believed in, whether I liked it or not, whether I agreed with them or not, whether anybody inside the Capitol agreed with them or not. I didn't see a black face in that crowd. A lot of the people there that day probably weren't terribly fond of my black ass, but it didn't matter. They were Americans executing their rights as Americans. Unless someone committed a real crime, no one would be arrested, tried, executed, shot, or disappeared. They would make their voices heard and then return safely to their homes, where they could continue to exercise their right by voting out the people they didn't like. In how many other countries could they do that without paying a cost? And I was a vital part of making that happen. On that day, the importance of our institutions, our rights, and my place in it hadn't completely sunk in. To me, it was still just a job. It would take a few more years before protecting democracy became a part of the very fiber of my being, something I would give my life for. On January 6th, I almost did. The truth is, I never wanted to be a police officer, not for the capital, not for the city, not for anybody. I didn't have anything against cops. I just never wanted to be one. Well, I can't say never ever. When you're in elementary school, they ask you what you want to be. And they put up pictures of a firefighter, a police officer, a nurse, a doctor, a teacher, or some other bullshit that society has pretty much programmed you to say. You pick one of the above. A police officer was always made out to be one of the most desirable and certainly one of the most honorable. They never asked if you wanted to be a Wall Street investment banker making millions of dollars or a restaurant owner or the inventor of the next great zillion dollar thing that would revolutionize the world. Hell, they could have suggested owning a chain of McDonald's restaurants. Everybody loved McDonald's. That would have been a very admirable goal. That said, by the time I reached junior high school, being a police officer certainly wasn't my dream. I would say that's probably true for at least half the people I know who have become police officers. It was not their dream job. Like me, they stumbled into it or they were recruited into it. Some might have come from a family of police officers, which led them into the profession. You know, granddad was a police officer, dad was a police officer, their uncle was a police officer, their cousin was a police officer. I hear that happens a lot in cities like Boston or Philadelphia or areas of Long Island, New York or Staten Island in New York City, where whole neighborhoods became New York City cops. In some cases, they come from a military background. In some cases, being a cop seemed the natural thing to do. In fact, some of the guys I've talked with over the years went into the military with the idea of landing a job in law enforcement because they believed their military experience would give them an advantage. Police officer, border patrol, state highway patrol. And that was true for a long time. Back in the days when being a cop meant kicking ass and taking names. These days, though, some departments are beginning to rethink that philosophy because being a cop 
at least being a good cop, has very little to do with what they train you to do in the military. I was never in the military, but my dad was. He served in the U.S. Air Force. In the military, you're trained to follow orders and accomplish the mission, which is also true with the police. But in the military, you're trained to overpower and kill the enemy. Yes, there are other skills that you learn in the process, but that was the purpose of the military. Seldom do you interact with civilians. In policing, interacting with civilians is 90% of the job. And the American citizens are not the enemy. Though some police officers treat some of them that way. They are the people we are paid to protect from the bad guys, and sometimes from themselves. We also serve in a lot of ways, from pointing residents to counseling for their knuckle-headed teenage son or belligerent daughter to attending the neighborhood watch meeting to talk with community members about crime trends in their neighborhood to directing traffic, helping everyone get from one place to the next. In our line of work, even the bad guys are not necessarily the enemy. Many people will have one, two, maybe even three real brushes with the law. I'm not talking about traffic tickets but shoplifting, drug possession arrest, and even first-time felonies. Yes, they have committed crimes, but they should not be branded as criminals. Criminals are the handful of Americans who have made a conscious decision that preying on other people will be their profession, their way of life. No, they don't want a job. They don't want to start a legitimate business. They have decided to abuse other people to get rich. I'm talking about everybody from serious drug traffickers and professional robbers to people like Bernie Madoff, who stole billions from hardworking Americans in a Ponzi scheme. To the people who ripped off billions in taxpayer money from Paycheck Protection Plan loans during the pandemic. So, being a police officer whether on my side of the street or in Mike's job with the D.C. Police Department, is a much more nuanced profession. You wade through a lot of factors when you're doing your job. For Black people, the idea of becoming a cop has a few more wrinkles. A lot of Black people became cops because they wanted to change what they saw as a corrupt and abusive system. In their neighborhoods, the police were not their friends. In poorer Black communities, by and large, the police were a vulgar, oppressive force. They rode herd over Black people. They treated you like shit. They talked to you like shit. It didn't matter who you were. Moms, dads, sisters, brothers, children. It didn't matter. So, some Black folks believed they could change police departments from the inside. We never had problems with the police in my neighborhood. Clinton, Maryland, where I grew up, is a small, predominantly black suburb about 20 miles southeast of Washington, D.C. My community was single-family homes and very working class. There was no crime, no robberies or break-ins, no drug dealers, no gangs. Kids played on the streets and in the parks. It was a carefree existence. I lived with my mom and dad and two of my four sisters. Back then, 
we just made up play. When you went outside, you looked for where the bicycles were stacked up in somebody's yard or on a corner. That's Mike's bike. That's Eric's bike. You found your friends, and you just jumped in with whatever everybody was doing. You might be playing basketball in someone's backyard. Or there was this wooded area where we played. You really didn't see the police officers. If you saw them, they were polite and respectful, so it was cool. Another incentive for black people to get a job with the police, particularly for those of us who grew up around the federal government in D.C. or big cities, was that government jobs meant long-term stability. In most of the nation's urban centers, jobs like police officer and firefighter come with incredible stability, which includes insurance and great pensions. Police and firefighters always had unions, and they negotiated great retirement packages. You do your 20 or 30 years, and you can retire relatively young with a great income for the rest of your life. Sometimes as much as 85% of your final salary. So, that's a big incentive, particularly for a young black man in a country where having a career, not a job, but a career, has seldom been held out as an attainable goal. That said, I still didn't want to be a police officer. Chapter 2. Growing into the job. By the end of high school, I had my eyes set on becoming a professional athlete. I know what you're thinking. Too many kids, especially black kids, have their hopes fixed on professional sports. It's the focus of sweat-filled dreams. The NFL, NBA, or MLB. Yes, I had those dreams too. And I know the odds. But I had a lot going for me. I had great parents who stood with me and made it possible for me to have everything I needed to succeed in junior high and high school sports. I had a great work ethic that I learned from my dad. I had size, and thanks to some great coaches in college, I developed my skills. I got close, tantalizingly close. Maybe if I had been more patient, I could have had that professional career. I began my growth spurt in junior high. I grew to six feet two by the eighth grade. By high school, I was six feet five. It was to be expected. My dad is six feet five. My mom is five feet nine. By my senior year, I weighed 275 pounds, so I was big. I was deep into sports. I was the starting center for the Surrattsville High School Hornets. I didn't score a lot, but I led Prince George's County in rebounds and blocks in my senior year. It's been a while, but I think I averaged about 10 points and 13 rebounds a game. We went to the playoffs every year, but we weren't good enough for the championship. I also played offensive tackle on the football team. We sucked as a football team. We had a good running back who ended up at Purdue University, but we didn't have anything else. I did well, mostly because I was big for a high school player. I didn't really have any skills. I was just bigger than everybody. So I could push people around, kind of like the portrayal of Michael Orr in the movie, The Blind Side. The year I graduated, I was voted all Prince George's County in football and basketball. I was proud of my accomplishments, but it was on to the next step. Fortunately for me, 
I had basketball and football scholarship offers. I felt I needed to decide which to pursue. Basketball was really my first love, but I knew I didn't have the speed and skills to compete in the NBA. I was big for high school, but I was undersized for the pros. I'd have to play guard or small forward, and I didn't have the required speed or dribbling skills. I saw a better chance to go to the NFL than the NBA, so football won out. I had several scholarship opportunities, so my parents and I began what I thought would be several official visits to colleges and universities. James Madison University in Harrisonburg, Virginia was the first stop. It was also the last. I accepted their offer without setting foot on campus. I know what you're thinking. I should have visited more schools, but I didn't understand the process. My parents didn't understand the process. My high school coaches didn't understand. I did it because it was the first offer I had, but I have never regretted it. I knew that was where I wanted to be. From the moment I arrived on campus, there was just something about it. It's only two hours from Clinton, but the way it's tucked away up in the mountains, it felt like I was in another place. It's not something I can really put my finger on, but from the moment I got there, I felt like I belonged. It felt like a community, like a family. Plus, I had a ball while I was there. The football players showed me around the campus. It's really a pretty place. Even though the school has about 20,000 students, it didn't feel that big. The first night, we went to a basketball game. After the game, we went to house parties with the upperclassmen so I could experience party life. I was young and dumb. What my social life might be was important to me, and at that point, more important than academics. We went to three or four parties that night. There were girls everywhere. There was not a lot of dancing. People were talking and drinking while the music was playing. The girls were fresh, ready to have a good time. Flirty as hell, but no, nothing happened. The next day, we went to a ski resort, not far from the school. I went tubing in the snow. That was a first. The thing I liked about JMU then, and that I found to be true throughout my years there, is that it felt like everybody cared about each other, the purple and gold. You went to a party at someone's place and they treated you like you were friends, even if they didn't know you. Come on in, grab a beer, make yourself at home. There was a lot of love. People supported each other. After I left, I still maintained strong ties with people from the university community. And when I testified before the January 6th committee, the JMU community supported me through their web pages and on social media. They stand by me and what I'm doing, and that's a good feeling. In my first year at James Madison, I was redshirted, which means I was on the team, but I wasn't going to play in my freshman year. Redshirting was a common practice in college athletics at the time. The coach might feel a certain freshman wasn't ready to start or couldn't move up the chart in front of the guys already playing the position. Redshirting allowed that player to retain four years of eligibility to play if they attended college for longer than the typical four years. Even Herschel Walker, one of the greatest running backs in the history of college football, and running back Marshall Falk, who was now in the NFL Hall of Fame, were redshirted in their freshman year. I had a year to work on myself. I had to get stronger, get bigger, 
get faster. One of the things you'll learn quickly when you get to the college football level is that everyone is big and everyone is fast and everyone comes with a great athletic resume. The first thing our head coach did was sit all the freshmen down as a group and in essence, tell us that we weren't shit. His name was Mickey Matthews. If you thought you were special, he had ridded you of that idea by the time he finished talking to you. Stand up if you were selected all state, Coach Matthews said. A few players stood up. Stand up if you were chosen all county, he said. More of us, including me, stood up. Stand up if you were all city. A few more players stood up. Stand up if you were captain of the football team. By the time he finished, we were all standing up. All that shit you did in high school doesn't mean shit in here, coach said. You're now with the best of the best. After that talk, I knew I had to get better fast or I was done. We had players from all over. A lot of them were from all across the Tidewater region. Hampton, Norfolk, Newport News, Virginia Beach. We also had a bunch of guys out of Georgia. My line coach, Coach Zernhelt, was frustrated with me when we started out because, like I said, I didn't have any skills. I was uncoordinated. The first thing I had to work on was perfecting my stance. People smaller than me knocked me on my ass because they had better technique than I did. Coach Z, that's what we called him, stayed on my ass. Harry, when you're in your stance, Put your weight on your quads, Coach Z said. Coach, that hurts, I said. That's because your quads aren't strong enough. You have to strengthen your quads. Harry, lead with your left foot. Harry, when you hit somebody, you want to hit them on your second step. Harry, when you hit a guy, deliver that blow with your foot on the ground. Otherwise, you don't have leverage. I played behind a guy named Kevin Mapp. Kevin was good, really good. He was one or two years older than me. That's why they redshirted me in my first year. There was no way I was going to beat out him or any of the backups. In the second game of my sophomore year, Kevin tore his Achilles tendon right before halftime. We were playing Hofstra in New York. I had a great week of practice. The coach said, Harry, you're in. The first play, we ran a trap, and I pulled. I was a lead blocker. Suddenly, this linebacker hit me, and I went airborne. Bam! He rocked me. My whole body hurt. I thought, is this what the rest of my career is going to be like? We won the game, but by the time it was over, I knew I had to get better. A lot better. The torn Achilles ended Kevin's playing career at JMU. By the next year, I was a beast. I was close to 330 pounds, and it was all muscle. I had worked so damn hard. There were winter workouts. During spring break, you got spring practice. In the summer, you went home for a week, and then you were doing summer workouts. You took classes in the summer, and you worked out. The next season, it showed. The people who stayed were the better performers on the team. When training camp came around in August, you were running circles around the other players because they were trying to get in shape and you were already there. C-T-E.
brain damage. Catherine Massey Book Club, Context of White Supremacy, first installment, Standing My Ground. We're in Chapter 2. We will pick up the paragraph, I started the rest of the 2002 season. That's what we'll pick up at Brain Damage. Number to dial 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. I still have Michael Swango on my mind. I just want to get it in because this book is short. We don't read unabridged books. That Michael Swango book that we just finished, the abridged version, less than half of what we read. It has been on my, I almost want to go and listen to the abridged version to see now exactly what did they cut out? Did they just cut out all the Zimbabwe and everything? Focus. Just wanted to get that on the record again. Number again, 605-313-5164. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. The email until justice at gmail dot com. Until justice at gmail dot com. Can email your thoughts, observations. Uh, for the first chunk of the text uh, for folks as we are moving through all of this and encroaching on election time have you done any research studied read any other books on what happened on January 6th just question to ask as we're moving along through all of this the election uh, presidential election in the U.S. is about to come up certainly all of that was mandatory that January 6th will have to be discussed as I said Trump's name not on the ballot in Colorado because January 6th now let's see I will do email I'll do one email and then we'll see if folks have observations thoughts to share let's see email number one All right. Email one person writes in Uh, greetings, Gus callers, listeners. I'm excited to read this book. It is so timely given that we are heading into a presidential election year. Mm -hmm. Prologue Uh, page 10. The ripples from that day still threaten our democracy. I've heard and read the words threat or threaten to our democracy repeated so often initially during Trump's first presidential campaign and then when he was elected president and increased even more after the January 6th riot by news commentators and politicians. It seems as if it is coded language. What is their definition of democracy? I have no idea what the word means within the context of a global system of white supremacy racism. I've heard that phrase jargon used a lot democracy and or threaten our democracy, whatever that means. 
Sometimes they'll have it with a lowercase d, sometimes capital. Uh, number two, page 10, domestic terrorists have used, have shot out the electoral power systems for neighborhoods and they are threatening to do the same for entire cities. See Cow's Book Club Selection, The Turner Diaries. In fact, just talked about that this past weekend on the compensatory call-in uh, in North Carolina specifically. It's been a whole year, still no arrests. You had people who died with the power outage last year, deliberate attack on the power station in North Carolina, a full 365 days no arrests number three page 12 we are Americans and as Americans we have those rights freedom of speech freedom of assembly Americans do not exist Neely Fuller Jr. four page 15 some people appreciate what I have to say I have been vilified by folks like Tucker Carlson when he was at Fox News Newsmax and MAGA make America great again fans people who would sacrifice our democracy in their worship of Trump I have been cursed and called profane names and my life has been threatened we have to be careful about engaging in racial narrowing in the global system of white supremacy racism. It's not just Fox News or Donald Trump that is the problem. Absolutely. That whole little nest that he mentioned, Tucker Carlson and Fox News and MAGA and Trump just say, oh man, these old white conservative Republicans, white men, oh, they're the worst. We just get rid of them. Like, come on. Come on. Chapter 1. Page 19, our core mission is not to fight crime. Our mission is to protect, to prevent crime, and to provide a safe space for democracy, small d, to function. 1983, an Israeli visiting the United States entered the capital with two plastic bottles filled with a flammable liquid, gunpowder, and improvised shrapnel. Fortunately, no one was killed or injured. After an investigation, they were tried and imprisoned. Uh, 19. 98, a man with a history of paranoid schizophrenia, he shot and killed one officer. The gunman survived. I was anticipating whether the author was going to discuss the killing of Miriam, Car Miriam, sorry, Miriam I. Carey by the Capitol Police on October 3, 2013. Me too. In fact, I was so thirsty, I was almost tempted to look ahead. But I said, no, I'll wait and see. He continues. Uh, her family was critical of the Capitol Police since they apparently did not show the same restraint when dealing with Miss Carey as they did with the January 6th insurrectionist. See, sister of black woman killed by U.S. Capitol Police angered by response to white rioters, CNN on the line. I, he might mention Miriam Carey. We left off. He was going back to his college athletic days uh, circa... 2002-2003 so maybe when he gets to his career at the Capitol Police before the riot maybe Miriam Carey will come up there I don't know we will see but that was on my mind as well for sure uh, Two, page 22 a lot of black people there that day probably weren't terribly fond of my black ass 
one of the many terms that victims use, including myself many times, to denigrate themselves. I mentioned that like a year ago, that phrase specifically in saying I, I just never, ever in my life, I don't think I've even heard it like one time. If you don't get your white ass out of here, like it even it just sounds peculiar, like what? But black ass, oh yeah. It's every day. All the time. But just black. I don't even hear it for any other non black people, non black, non white, classified as white, none of that. Just you don't get your black ass. Black and I'm proud. Uh, let's see. Chapter two. James Madison University. I accepted their offer without setting a foot on campus. No, I know what you're thinking. I should have visited more schools, but I don't understand the process. My parents didn't understand the process. My high school coaches didn't understand. This seems emblematic of non-white victims. We don't understand the process with a capital P or in other words, the system of racism, white supremacy, James Madison, so-called founding father, slave owner, probably a fondling father, fourth president of the United States. Uh, Let's see. And we didn't get that far. We'll pause there. Email again until justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com number 605-313-5164 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate let us know if you've read other books or you know studied all of the terrorism that took place almost three years ago uh, let's see going back get some of my notes then see if other folks have thoughts on the first part of the reading let's see he said that I'm just going back to the introduction uh, that we heard with Jeff Ballou, blackmail uh, Mr. Dunn said that prior to January 6th and all that happening which is interesting because he said I mean that would be kind of recent but he said prior to that it was just sports and new music before January 6th. Yeah, I think that he said it was just sports and, and new music was the main focus. Now, he are, he's telling us he was a college athlete. So a lot of us, that is how we get trained to focus on what is important. Entertainment. Sports is under entertainment. It is music, sports, entertainment. And not even... I'm a study entertainment as a facet of white supremacy racism. No, no, no. How about those wizards? Ooh-wee. That's the uh, Washington basketball team professional. Uh, and then the black people and mental health. I hear that frequently that black people are not, don't talk about mental health enough or not receptive to mental health or won't seek out mental health. Uh, that, is very bothersome to me, number one, because we're in a system of white supremacy, racism, medical apartheid. You've had legions of decades, if not centuries, where black people, mental draftomania, really, one. And then two, if I do want to go to a psychologist like Dr. Welsing, 
you mistreat her and you mistreat me. And I said, what are you talking about? Racism. You're just blaming the man and woman for your, pro- for your, for your problems, not having any self-responsibility, personal accountability, as it were, and all the rest of it. So I greatly push back. In addition to you won't give us Obamacare so we can't go to a professional and can't afford it and all the rest. I mean, it's just it's such a long list. I mean, you make it difficult for black people to just go get a regular checkup dental visit and the like much less mental health counseling and then turn around and say well you know the negroes you know they're not accepting they don't like mental health like get out of here that I mean non-white people can take that perspective vgq but no i greatly push back on that i do not think that's accurate and even hey dr welsing was around for a long time i think that has changed to a great degree we had a number of children on the program earlier this year and we spoke about mental health with them and all of them seemed very familiar. These were all black children under 18, most of them except for one, and they all seemed very familiar with the importance of mental health and said that they had access to those resources and all of that. So, yeah, things have changed to a degree and the people that are most to blame are not black people being resistant. System of white supremacy, usual suspects. Now, uh, from the prologue, he says, what is the subject we promise ourselves to avoid with strangers? Now, he ha- does ask this as a question, but I was thinking racism, white supremacy. Right. Isn't that the one like, hey, hey, hey. If it's going to be things that we don't talk about, psh, ra- what did he say? You're playing the race card like eh, eh, eh. That is a big one. I know politics can be a big one in general, religion, but I mean, really all of that for the most part, directly, indirectly, we're still just talking about white supremacy racism. But I mean, that is the, the, the big one that we're not supposed to talk about with strangers. That would have been the case before and after January 6th. Said the lives of the election workers, the backbone of our electoral systems are being threatened online via hundreds of messages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by those who would disrupt our elections. Watch your back. I know where you sleep. Be afraid. Be very afraid. This reminded me they just convicted uh, Giuliani in civil court. All those punitive damages for exactly everything that I just read. Threatening black elected uh, election workers, black female election workers, no less. Uh, down in Florida and there was so much of that uh, during that 2020-2021 time period even continuing uh, up to this day uh, just terrorism ongoing against black people Uh, let's see said domestic terrorists have shot out the electrical power systems I really appreciated that number one because that I don't think has got enough attention Uh, like I just said they didn't even make arrests in North Carolina and some of the other locations where this happened during Christmas time last year, no less. Uh, and it continued even after that. Uh, but that is domestic terrorism. That's the way it should be talked about branded. This is not a prank, uh, a, a bad actors and all that other old nonsense. Like that is domestic terrorism. You had people who died as a result of that. And maybe that was the goal. Uh, let's see. He said, uh, I was at the Capitol on January 6th, immersed in a profane mix of sweat, screams, shrieks, blah, 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 racism, comma, bigotry. I love that word. One of my favorites. But is racism the same as bigotry? Because I see frequently people will use them as synonyms. So is he being redundant here? Are there, do they mean something different to him? Maybe. 
just stood out to me. Uh, and he said that he also was uh, attacked with batons, shields, bear, and pepper spray. <laughs> I don't know if you saw it on the can that they had like, wow, this is the bear one. And then they just got the regular pepper spray. But either way, he was attacked with both and then beaten with the American flag. Said, wow, how Ted Landsmark that won the, uh, th- during a different time where white people were rioting bigots in Massachusetts and they ended up beating a black male Ted Landsmark in Boston with the American flag became I think Time Magazine photo of the year for 1975 72 somewhere in that region I might be off by a year or two but Ted Landsmark is the victim's name he's still alive and gets asked about that photo all the time Uh, continuing this is uh, still the prologue you felt something you had never felt before the shock and fear that somebody was trying to take over your country that possessive adjective second person your country as a victim of white supremacy racism I don't have a country I never say my country and since that is the case I would never and I did not feel like someone was trying to take over my country that is not how I felt on January 6th and that that tone uh, throughout the kind of prologue the introduction of the text really also bothered me greatly because he was talking as though we all had the same feeling about this and if the country is so divided and, and the election and all of that violently so then clearly we all didn't have the same thought process about this even the people who you know thought that this was a criminal thing or did not support the terrorism we all didn't have the same thinking about this. All of us didn't even call this terrorism. So that really um, just, I don't know, taking that liberty and, and speaking as though, you know, we all had a common viewing or perspective on all of this, that, yeah, it, there's so much of that. We, he uses that uh, with first person plural, we, a lot in all of this. And yeah, I, just speak for yourself. Just speak for yourself. Uh he said, this is not one of those countries where citizens are beaten, shot, killed, or disappeared for expressing their beliefs. Uh, contraire, mon frere. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Mumia Abu-Jamal came to mind, but we put him to the side. Some people say, that's controversial. You know, it's, it's, we all don't have the same view. I acknowledge that. The one that I will take is Chicago. That's not dispute. John Burge, the Chicago Police Department, under the legal language, under the color of law, he terrorized black people system of white supremacy racism local global level but locally in Chicago he terrorized black people that's the language that they use teaching it in public schools that he did exactly that beating shooting killing disappearing people all that and I mean it's long Cointel Pro I just said that on Tuesday with our white guest they have a long record uh, in this part of the world of doing all of those things you just uh, Dr. King you out here criticizing us and making us look bad trying to make us disrupt the system of white supremacy racism <laughs> we will fix your wagon don't get me started on Guantanamo Bay either like are you serious like yeah too much evidence that is totally like out of this world false and contradicted by evidence this time you were shocked you see assuming 
I just that whole tone assuming how the reader felt. How do you know what I felt, man? You don't know what was in my head, in my brain computer. You were shocked because what you saw is not what Americans do. That One of our listeners, readers, already pointed that out. Uh, Americans, the use of that term. Uh, you looked down, you looked on, a, on as thousands of Americans tried to kill or maim hundreds of other Americans, so-called American patriots, brutally beat men and women in blue they claimed to hold in such high regard. Now, I was not shocked about that. I didn't, you know, expect all of that. But, hey, Charlottesville had happened not that long ago. We did have Dylan Storm Roof out in South Carolina not that long ago. We did have Hurricane Katrina and white people came to Louisiana to shoot and kill. Same type of activity. I have seen lots and lots of mob white behavior and I mean if you want to look back at the whole of the country Jesus Christ I mean that is they brag about that mob white violence at the hands of persons unknown all the time the soccer games and all of that so they run out and get a bad batch of eggnog and I just tell you the great eggnog riot of 1826 anniversary of that about to come 200 year anniversary of that about to come up that's the whole history of you know individuals classified as white so no, I was not exactly shocked uh, that that happened. Uh, like I said, like, wow, I hadn't planned for that on my January 6, 2021, but they even had been talking about that sort of thing. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. He says our own communities. Now, that word community is also one Mr. Fuller talks about, has talked about for years. The only people who have a community are classified as white and he says, in fact, to give the full sentence, they said they were there to stop the will of the people and the halt of our 224 year history of peaceful transfer of power. They weren't the international thugs and foreign terrorists of the movies trying to take over our country. Instead, these were people from our own communities. Again, contraire mon frere, many white people do not live around black people. And I strongly suspect the folks who came out there. I suspect many of them probably live in areas with very low populations of people classified as black. They did not come from our, in quotes, so-called communities. Uh, I did appreciate that he itemized uh, accountants and retirees, police officers, doctors, lawyers. Uh, so we don't get into that racial narrowing that it's just dumb, ignorant, uneducated, one tooth uh, down and out white people who practice racism and engage in this sort of barbaric uh, behavior that is not true at all that is not representative of who is there for January 6th that is not representative of racist man racist woman uh, let's see he says meanwhile every year for the past 22 years we've relived 9-11 we re revisit the horrible footage of thousands of Americans who perished in the World Trade Center around our enemies crash jetliners into the buildings we watch people so helpless uh, we weep for the first responders who perished all of that uh <laughs> again you don't know how we process uh, all of this oh and even that after our enemies crash jetliners into the buildings you do not know how your readers process the events of 9-11 did our enemies do that you don't know I certainly have my own thoughts about that but that would be a different book for a different day uh, let's see 
All of it was horrific, all of it unforgettable, but January 6th was different. This was a more vicious gut punch, one made even crueler because we didn't see it coming. I think there's a lot of evidence. That's why I asked, like, if people read, researched what happened January 6th, because I think there's a lot of evidence that there was quite a bit of intel that something was afoot. Disgruntled white people hopping online, got these forums talking about coming mad as hell. I think there was quite a bit of evidence and lead up to all of this, but we'll continue. Uh, I cried that day. I was crying when I ran to Senator Mitch McConnell's side office door because we got a call that some of his staff had been had locked themselves in against rioters and needed help. I said, dang, they've been mocking old Mitch, even having health problems in such past year or so. Like, dang, maybe maybe Mitch ain't been right since January 6th. Maybe that's what it is. His staff all traumatized and all the events. Maybe that's what it is. I'm not a doctor. Just, you know, theory. Uh, continues it was imperfect only white men who owned land could vote and hundreds of thousands of people were excluded from the process because they were slaves still we grew up proud that no kings or queens lorded over us we have a government of the people by the people for the people again the, the we speak for yourself now I gotta be lumped in not just I'm black and I'm proud but I'm proud no kings or queens lorded over me white people lord over me all the time Fuller, Fuller said racism white supremacy is a royalist system where white people have just made themselves kings and queens over the negras and that's how they behave that's why I said we don't live in the same neighborhood they have the big houses and the mansions up on the hill and look down on us and even call our neighborhoods the bottoms and things like that so yeah I, I do not accept that one either uh, I'm not proud of the kings and queens that don't rule us uh, or bragging. I thought he was even going to go into we got to be proud because we got Negro kings. I remember when I read that the first time, I thought he was going to say, uh, yeah, it's imperfect, but still, we know that we came from kings and queens in Africa. I thought that's what he was going to say, which would have been equally repulsive, but he just took me a different route. Continues. He said, our government has an even greater special significance for some of us. Thank you for not speaking for everybody. For African Americans... Our belief in its promise has been almost like a religion. We needed to believe. Now, I don't know what that. I don't know what that means at all there. Uh, we had to believe. We had no choice. I don't. Eh. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what all that means. Speak for yourself. Um, he says, talking about the so-called immigrants and how they felt uh, in watching everything that happened on January 6th. He said they quickly learned our streets weren't paved with gold. Yes, there was discrimination here, but it was the government's job to protect them, not persecute them. They could fight the government and challenge that government to do what's right. They could vote and their vote would matter. They could even be the government. Now, that sounded way Pollyanna and unrealistic for so many reasons. One, we just started with the big one, the D word discrimination. Do you mean racism? I suspect that might be what it is, but discrimination and then he says the government's job to protect immigrants particularly if they're not white we just I keep uh, sharing reports we got neutralizing workplace racism tomorrow I keep sharing reports about immigrant children I'm not even talking about the big big people that hop the fence to come over here and rape white women got calves like watermelons remember they were saying that uh, around election time a few years back I'm not even talking about them I'm talking about the little people children so-called immigrants 
what did they, they don't protect them. They don't even let them go to school. They put them in the factory and tell them, hey, man, you know how to do bone chicken? Well, I'm fitting to learn you. Here, there you go. Watch your fingers. You And, and put them on the, the graveyard shift. That's not government protection. You can't even get the government to think, whoa, whoa, whoa. We can't have Pedro. He's 12 in here deboning chickens at 2 in the morning. They've been talking about that for a year and haven't stopped it. Come on, man. Come on. That, uh, yeah, and, and they could fight like, really? Pedro and company, they can fight the government, whatever that means. I, don't, I guess he doesn't mean like getting in a ring or something and putting on gloves. I mean, going to court? You weren't even born here? Extra poly, outright decept, deceitful, maybe? I don't know. Uh, America didn't always live up to its promise. This anthropomorphizing, hopefully correct, correct pronunciation. Uh, when you say America, we already had American, now America didn't always live up to its promise. Do you mean the geographic land? Or are you talking about the people who discriminate and practice bigotry? People classified as white. That's what we're talking about. The people that are in charge in the place called America. Uh, even that U.S. about we talk Brazil now. You know, come on, U.S. 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 Be specific. That's why January 6th hurt so much. It was a frightening wake-up call that our democracy, this thing we hold so precious, can be taken away from us. Now, this was small-letter democracy. You know, hey, we're in a system of white supremacy, racism. White people engage in violence all the time. So these sort of things happen daily. Uh, let's see. Chapter 1. I really wish he had included footnotes and more information when he started going into detail about some of these previous incidents of violence at the U.S. Capitol. I would just a name or two so that we could go and you know, who, when did this happen? What was all this about? Oh, wow. Okay. Like this, the, the first incident that he talks about with this uh, early in 2023 who was all this? Where they had to have seven hours worth of negotiation? Who was this? Who did this? What was all this about? I'd like, you know, a few more or footnote even. That way we could, you know, search on our own. Um, where he's going through some of these different incidents where they've had to intercede uh, to try to keep people safe. Um, let see where he says... And where he's going through some of the history, pre like older, uh, not just this year. He says in October 1983... An Israeli visiting the United States entered the capital with two plastic bottles filled with a flammable liquid, gunpowder, and improvised shrapnel. The device was rigged to a detonator with copper wire. He planned to explode it where it could do the most damage. That one. Footnote. Who was this? What? Like, what the, and particularly given the context now, what was all of this about? Did he have a reason for doing this? When you say so-called... Israeli was he born here was he born in so-called Israel male female like just give me some more detail about that one don't just toss that war like I said just give me a quick footnote uh, let's see a month later so I guess this will still be in 83 November uh, in the bathroom in the capital two American members of the communist organization assembled a bomb that detonated and caused extensive damage. Fortunately, no one was killed or injured. After an investigation, they were tried and imprisoned. 
even that one and really particularly that one because I did pause and look on that one like who who is this and I looked and they got it was a gang uh, that was led by white women who carried out this bomb uh, they have uh, make sure I can get their name here but they're oh my god it's uh it's from the report in the 1980s a far left female led domestic terrorism group bombed the US Capitol there's a book about all of this might have to talk to them maybe uh, amidst the social and political this is from the Smithsonian Magazine amidst the social and political turmoil of the 1970s a handful of white women among them one time Barnard student a Texas sorority sister the daughter of former communist journalist joined and became leaders of the May 19th communist organization named to honor the shared birthday of civil rights icon Malcolm X and Vietnamese leader Ho Chi Minh M19 took its belief in revolutionary anti-imperialism to violent extremes it is the first and only women created and women white women created and white women led terrorist group says national security expert and historian William Rose knew and they have photographs here everybody here to me looks like easily that they would be classified as white that's why I said like just give me an extra sentence so that I can see a tad bit more detail like dang that even further uh, stand like what in the world that's what I mean like eh, shocked shocked incidentally pause now what have we been reading all year long Columbine and all that bomber man just even Birmingham they can't even call it Birmingham Bombingham all over the world they brought that up with Norway and what have you bombing by uh, uh, Anders Breivik Oppenheimer that's all we've been talking white people bomb that the white culture bombs and, but they said pipe bombs I just said Columbine man Colorado right in there too bombing and bombing and bombing and bombing and did they have we were talking about the poor man's James Bond anarchist cookbook did these folks have that book too same time period what do it mean to be white uh, let's see okay so then he gets to 2009 obesies that's what I said so if he goes back and then he slow walks us through his career up to the capital maybe Miriam Carey will come in that way so he talks about by 2009 he's working for the police and so they're having this is Obama's first year in office he's been there about eight nine months at this point he said they start having the demonstrations about the affordable care act he says by now everyone was calling it obamacare as a pejorative but it morphed into a demonstration against anything obama some people were hollering about gun rights and singing god bless america uh pause america dr welsing i am race but mostly they were protesting and cursing Obama. Some of them were chanting liar, liar, liar because of what Representative Joe Wilson, a Republican from South Carolina, had called Obama three days earlier during his first State of the Union address. One person had a sign that called Obama the parasite in chief. Other people had signs that basically said he was a black Adolf Hitler. I remember those signs he they had the mustache and all that those are very popular you can probably find uh, memes and such of those online and social media if you look uh, they pro- they should you could probably do a whole project that would be fascinating uh, revelation of white supremacy racism social media 
through the Obama years and go back through the campaign because I remember they had the Hitler meme and they had one of the White House with a watermelon patch out front and then they had Curious Joy. It just went on and on and on and on. If they haven't already had that, but you could do some amazing social media projects, white supremacy, racism over those years. Uh, and more I could even say about that. Continuing, um, he says when he's looking at this crowd, and I remember when they were having those town hall meetings and such about uh, the Affordable Care Act. That was when you started seeing white people with guns, long barrel guns, just walking. Now they have they would have a black person or a non-white person there too, but it was predominantly what he said. I didn't see a black face in that crowd. Most of these meetings, it would be mostly white people out stomping up and down, mad. What he's cursing, frothing at the mouth, mad liar, you coon, damn that Obama, he stole the election. I got a right to have my gun. He's gonna cut. That's what they were doing. Carolyn Anderson, white race. She wrote that book in 2016. That's why I said shocked that all this happened. No, no, no. I've been paying attention for the last few years or last decade or so. Like, yeah, it is. You can see a long trail of gingerbread crumbs. See how I mix that up? Holiday metaphor. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's see. The. Some might have come from a family of police officers, which led them into the profession. You know, granddad was a police officer. Dad was a police officer. There was uncle was a police officer. Their cousin was a police officer. I hear that happens a lot in cities like Boston or Philadelphia or areas of Long Island, New York or Staten Island, New York City, where whole neighborhoods became New York City cops. You see there neutralizing workplace racism. I say one of the words nepotism. I am really, really sure you do not have no generations of negras, particularly a whole neighborhood of negras. Well, oh yeah, my granddad and uncle was a cop and all that like come on. There might be one isolated uh, incident here and there, but the uh, police, fire department, those types of jobs, their whole books on all of the nepotism and cronyism of uh, that where they have hooked up their grandchildren and nephew exactly what he said nepotism neighborhood that same thing with community the only people who have neighborhoods or communities are classified as white Uh, and connected to all that he said police and firefighters always had unions and they negotiated great retirement packages you do your 20 or 30 years and you can retire relatively young with a great income for the rest of your life sometimes as much as 85% of your final salary that is high class refined nepotism and you got a long history of those unions excluding negras not accidental Two, growing into the job, second chapter. He starts it off by saying that he had his eyes focused on athletics, which, I mean, I might even have to go back to make sure I'm not lying on Mr. Dunn, because I think he did say up until January 6th, he was mostly focused on music, entertainment, sports, music. Like, dang, has it been that way from high school? Which, that is most of us, non-white people, victims of racism. That is where we are trained to focus our attention. But he said he had his hopes, like many others, fixed on professional sports. 
It's the focus of sweat-filled dreams, the NFL, NBA, or MLB. I even pause there because white supremacists have been so successful, most non-white people under the age of 20 have no idea who Jackie Robinson is, nor do they have any interest at all in even watching baseball, much less becoming a baseball player to the point that Major League Baseball has acknowledged this as a problem. Like, what happened to the Negroes? Oh my goodness, what are we going to do? So black people, especially if you're talking African Americans, like, no way. I would challenge you. See if you can find five black children who want to be a professional baseball player. See if you can find five black children that can even name five current black professional baseball players. They don't have to be black, just current professional baseball players. He says, uh, talking about his high school football career, I was just bigger than everybody so I could push people around, kind of like the portrayal of Michael Orr in the movie The Blind Side. Talk about white supremacy racism. Didn't Michael Orr just have his big trial, get his family's white, excuse me, white abducting adoptive parents, uh, get the conservatorship shut down the white judge said he was shocked that this even happened like what is all this for you up here lying and trying to take advantage of some privileged black male and the whole fiction of the blondes but anyway power of white movies and entertainment uh he just had a book published too mr Orr. i accepted their offer at jmu oh we talked about that one black people not in for even at this late date this is you know not ancient history uh, this is pretty far down the road and still we are not very informed about things that count. Uh, incidentally, finance is also racist to blame there too. Uh, it can be expensive to take all of those trips and then the racism that parents experience, they don't have all of that information and then racist white teachers, how helpful are they in sharing all of the information? So same usual suspects, but still, um, he says when he got to JMU and they were showing him around, he said there were girls everywhere. I am certain just by the demographics of the campus, many of them, most of them white. There was not a lot of dan- There was not a lot of dancing. People were talking and drinking while the music was playing. Have to be a lot of underage drinking. This is a majority white campus in Virginia and the white culture that they brag about and all the debauchery and everything else not that far down the road from Charlottesville in fact if you want to jump ahead in the story but yeah all of that debauchery and what have you and the black people that do come here might be an athlete in fact JMU let's let's see JMU just for so that we will know this is a campus roughly 20,000 when I say predominantly white this is uh, from collegefactual.com JMU is listed at 75% white, 16,200 population out of 20,000. Negro, less than 5%. They have a smidge, and I do mean a smidge, over 1,000 black or African-American students. So that's like the whole shebang. African-American, Caribbean, African, the pretend Negroes, all of that. Obama, get on in there. Less than 5%. You got just about 1,000 at a school of 20 so it was not a lot and that is in strong contrast to where he came from in Maryland which is a super black population area but that is JMU with all that underage drinking and no dancing something about the lack of they got the music and drinking but no dancing something about that stands out too but 
have to think on that later. Uh, I tested. I testified before the January 6th committee. The JMU community supported me through their web pages and on social media. They stand by me and what I'm doing, and that's a good feeling. Wow, I was surprised to hear that. I might even have to go through and dig on the JMU website to see what they've uh, tweeted about him. But that is 20 years later and all of this standing by black alumni right on alumnus. Uh, let's see. Uh, he talks about getting to JMU to play football. Uh, I was a beast man, not they're not people which just can't be amazing and great. Like most of the time I don't hear Tom Brady described as a beast. He'll be a person, but he'll just be great. They'll say goat, but that's an acronym for greatest of all time. I don't generally hear Tom Brady called a beast. Uh, I was close to 330 pounds. I just paused there one uh, CTE. And we talked about that too. You end up with a lot of black people who play football, not even necessarily professionally, but them too. But they play football and they'll say that line. Oh man, this is for the tubby kids so they can get some exercise. You know, if you're overweight or too big to play basketball or track or whatever it is, you can play football and all that where you end up with people who are rewarded for being 330 pounds now he says it was all muscle if I see or I do see him now he looks like he is still over 300 pounds uh, just my untrained eye it does not look like it is all muscle and they said that can be a big problem particularly you end up with a lot of privileged black males with a lot of that excess body weight and then a lot of times you end up with football injuries and such so it can be difficult to get all that weight off I mean if you're up to 330 you might be 100 pounds over what your healthy body weight should be for your size and frame. Talked about that with Julie Stam in her book, uh, The Youth, uh, Youth Sports and the Brain. The Brain and Youth Sports. Tackle football, big no. Anyway, uh, my thoughts for the first portion. Let's see. Oh, I see folks who dialed in with hands up. Well, nab their hands. Let's see. Folks who dialed in with commentary. My bad for chatting it up. I didn't see that they had hands. Folks who dialed in with a hand up, Jeff commentary. May I be heard? That would be Lauren. Yes, ma'am. Um, yes, sir. Uh, good evening, everyone. Thank you for allowing me to speak. Right at the beginning of the prologue, it said we need to talk about our trauma. Yes, you and me. You may not think you are experiencing it, but you are. And I thought to myself, that could be said to every non-white person on the planet. We do need to talk about racism, especially the people who think or say that they're not experiencing it. It seems to be really hard for us to actually dis to discuss it in a logical manner I don't know if that's what he meant. It seems like he didn't, but that's what I thought when I read it. Um, so excellent first line, I think. Um, there was another thing where he said he was talking about trauma. And he said, um, let me see. Um, well, it's, I'm trying to think. Okay. It said, what's the dictionary? He said, that's what the dictionary says trauma is a deeply distressing or disturbing experience. Trust me, I looked it up. 
Now, um, I did look up the definition of trauma. And I think the reason I did is because, well, I don't think it's logical to trust anyone. Um, But whenever I hear someone say, trust me, I operate with an even higher level of suspicion. So, yeah, I looked it up. Um, Let me see. Um, There was another part where he was talking about him and other law enforcement officers, and he said, we could have run away. We could have said we didn't sign up for this, but we did sign up for it. We just never imagined it like that. I thought that was a very realistic way to articulate it, and it didn't sound cowardly either. I I hear a lot of white law enforcement officers say they're afraid, and it's not cowardly to be afraid. I, I want to say that, but to be afraid and then not take the action that needs to be taken, I think that's cowardly. And I think, you know, that's what bravery is, right? Being afraid and then, you know, uh, moving forward. um, Well, that's a metaphor. Continuing to do what needs to be done, even though you're afraid. I think that's what bravery is. Um, I also noted the part where he said, this is not Iran or Russia or Venezuela. This is not one of those countries where citizens are beaten, shot, killed, or disappeared for expressing their beliefs, their desires, or their dissatisfaction. Man, that's just, that's not accurate. That's, I'm not sure, like, if he doesn't ever watch the news or read the paper or, you know, he hasn't heard of um, Asada Shakur or Geronimo Pratt or, you know, it's a lot of people who have been, um, beaten, shot, killed, and disappeared for expressing, I wouldn't say beliefs, but I would, you know, say um, articulating their thoughts, especially about racism. Um, he brought up the Dred Scott decision, and he just kind of mentioned it. Um, you know, whenever I hear someone talk, I always think about that same line um, that Well, let me just read a section from that. It says um, African-Americans, and it has it like in brackets. So I'm not even sure if um, the Chief Justice Roger Taney, if he said African-Americans or if he said Negroes or niggers, I don't know. But African-Americans have for more than a century before been regarded as beings of an inferior order and altogether unfit to associate with the white race either in social or political relations and so far inferior that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect. Now, that's the part I always think about when I think about the Dred Scott decision. And I, you know, I just think maybe he could have put a little more in it, but I don't know. I'll read the rest, though. And that the Negro might justly and lawfully be reduced to slavery for his benefit. He was bought and sold and treated as an ordinary article of merchandise and traffic whenever a profit could be made by it. So, you know, I just thought it was important to say that. Um, I think the chapter two, I think that was chapter two, the name of it was Protecting Democracy, made me think of Dr. Welsing. Um, just, I don't think we're in a system of democracy that is functioning imperfectly. 
I think we're in a system of racism, white supremacy that is functioning exactly the way white people um, designed it to. Um, that part, he said, when you're in elementary school and they ask you what you want to be and they put up pictures of a firefighter, a police officer, a nurse, a doctor, a teacher, or some other bullshit that society has pretty much programmed you to say, you pick one of the above. He he did. So I thought that was interesting. Um he also, there was another segment, it said criminal are the handful of Americans who have made a conscious decision that preying on other people will be their profession, their way of life. No, they don't want a job. They don't want to start a legitimate business. They have decided to abuse other people. Now, I had a couple of questions. Um, what does legitimate mean? I wanted to know. Is practicing racism a legitimate business? And I'm going to make a statement with this one. I don't think racists are typically thought of as criminals by people who don't practice racism. I think most non-white people do not think of racist man, racist woman, and racist child as criminals. Um, and I think that should change. Um, and, and that's all I have for right now. Well, hold on. I also, I, I noticed when he was talking about the football, um, it just made me sad. And it's just because of how many black, I was about to say black males, but black people, black young people try to play sports to get out of the poor situation that most of us are in. And, you know, going to college, not to try to learn, but just to play sports, Man, that's sad, and yeah, I, I don't know. It's just sad. Also, when he he said the thing about the drinking at the party, I don't know. Maybe I, maybe my college experience was a lot different than other people's, and I, I went to an HBCU. But I actually, I don't think I ever drank on the college campus. Now I did drink when I was in college. Um, and certainly before I was 21, but I never drank on campus. Um, so that is, I just wanted to point that out. And I also noticed the, the beast thing. I, yeah, I won't share that other part because it's not related. That's all I have for now. Thank you for allowing me to speak. Much obliged. Lauren, we will nab Z's mommy and other folks my bad for not seeing we had uh, hands up we'll get our second audio segment and that way we'll have time for folks to share afterwards so if you did not get to share write down your thoughts and we will be right back after audio segment two Harry Dunn victim of white supremacy standing my ground Catherine Massey book club I started the rest of the 2002 season and all of the 2003 season I loved being a lineman. We were the biggest, toughest, strongest guys on the team. And we were essential. The quarterback couldn't be good without us giving him the time to throw. The running back couldn't be good without us creating holes for him to run through. We do the work, but we don't get the credit. As our offensive line coach told us, if we don't give them time, none of this shit works. My 2004 season started well, but I hurt my shoulder. 
and I couldn't continue as one of the starting tackles. I contributed, but I was hampered by the injury. So I was substituted into a lot of games. But it didn't matter because that was a great year for our team. We won the one AA national championship. James Madison had never won one. That's just to let you know, it was a big deal. JMU won a second championship in 2016. But in 2004, we were phenomenal. We went 13-2. and We were the first and only team to win three games on the road to advance to the national championship game. Linemen, like me, were crucial to our success. We were definitely a running team. In the championship game, we ran for 314 yards and passed for only 132. After we were crowned the national champions, you couldn't tell me a damn thing. We were the champions. Couldn't anybody tell us shit? Nope, no humility. We had these big championship rings. We wore them everywhere. I wore mine for years. My last year in 2005 was a good year. We didn't go back to the championship game, but we averaged 404 yards of total offensive game, and 235 of that was the run game. I got invitations for tryouts to several NFL teams, the Washington Redskins, the Buffalo Bills, the Pittsburgh Steelers, Jacksonville Jaguars, the Indianapolis Colts, the Carolina Panthers, and one or two more I can't remember. Unfortunately, none of them panned out. I tried out for and was signed by the Montreal Alouettes in the Canadian Football League. Lots of NFL players started in the CFL before crossing over to the NFL. In college, quarterback Joe Theismann played with Notre Dame and then played three seasons in the CFL with the Toronto Argonauts before going to Washington in the NFL, where he took the team to two Super Bowls, beating the Miami Dolphins in one and losing to the Raiders in the other. Unfortunately, his career ended on national television in a Monday night football game when all everything, New York Giants linebacker Lawrence Taylor broke Theismann's leg on a devastating hit. Jeff Garcia was a backup quarterback with the Calgary Stampeders until his fifth and final CFL season. That year, he led Calgary to the Grey Cup title, the CFL's equivalent of our Super Bowl. Garcia then signed with the San Francisco 49ers in the NFL as a backup to future Hall of Fame quarterback Steve Young. After Young's career ended because of a devastating hit in a game, Garcia became the starter. He was selected for the Pro Bowl three times in his five seasons with San Francisco. Center Brett Jones played for the Calgary Stampeders and was very successful before going to the New York Giants. And Warren Moon, one of the NFL's greatest quarterbacks, started his career with the Edmonton Eskimos before signing on with what was then the Houston Oilers. Moon was so successful that he is the only player to be inducted into the NFL Pro Football Hall of Fame and the CFL Hall of Fame. So playing with the Alouettes seemed a logical step to getting to the NFL. Many athletes, including a defensive back on my JMU team, who signed with the Alouettes in the same year I did, played their whole careers in the CFL. It's a good living, and you're doing the thing you love to do. Anyway, I had a great training camp with the team that year. I played twice in the preseason games against the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. The line coach said, Harry, you're killing it. 
But then I was hospitalized for a damn foot infection. It was bad. So bad that I had to stay in the hospital for two days. I couldn't play that year, so I was cut. It wasn't a great feeling, but I still had hopes. I wasn't cut because I wasn't good enough. I was good, but I caught a bad break. I headed back to Clinton. I worked in clubs as a bouncer and busted my ass to stay in shape for another shot at football. I played a lot of basketball, and it actually surprised me how good I was. I was playing against college kids and former NBA players. The next year, Montreal asked me to try out for the team again. I had another great camp, even better than the previous year. I was kicking ass. I was getting all this praise from my coaches. But then I was summoned to my general manager's office, and they told me to bring my playbook. I knew what that meant. I was being cut. I said to myself, this has got to be a joke. I'm bawling but I headed to the general manager's office. Hey man, we gotta let you go, the general manager said. He's not giving me much. He's not explaining anything, offering me anything. I said, no, you got the wrong dude. I belong here. All he said was, after lunch, you turn in your playbook and you wait for your flight home. I didn't get it. I truly didn't understand. I was playing well. It was a really hard reality to accept but I had to. I began preparations to head home. While I was packing, I got a call from the line coach. Harry, where the hell are you? He asked. We're meeting. Get your ass down here. Coach, I said. I'm headed home. I've been cut. I've turned in my playbook. The coach was just as confused as I was. No way, he said. Don't go anywhere until you hear from me. Let me talk to some people and just come to the meeting room. When he showed up, he was furious. Unfortunately, even he couldn't fix what was wrong. Harry, you're doing great, he said. You're having a great camp, and you belong here. This has nothing to do with your play. This is business. We've got too many Americans on the team. You're better than the other guy, but he's Canadian. I was hurt. I was good enough. Even better than good but the CFL had its rules. A certain percentage of the team had to be Canadian nationals, and only a certain number of starters could be American. I was asked out. When I returned to Clinton this time, I was angry. I was angry and hurt. I'm good enough. I know it. They know it. But I can't get a job because of some rules that have nothing to do with my abilities. Fuck it. Fuck this politics shit. To be honest, I hadn't completely given up on playing professional football. I loved the game. I loved demolishing people on the line. I loved the feeling when me and another lineman double team blocked the guy and put him on his ass. Afterwards, we would dap each other up. Yeah, we crushed that motherfucker. But for now, that would have to wait. I was back in the D.C. area, and I needed to work. I landed a job with Enterprise Rent-A-Car. They liked hiring college athletes because we had a sense of teamwork, which was really important in their operation. They even based a major television commercial campaign on that philosophy. It was a cool gig. I met lots of different types of people. I've always been a curious, talkative person, so it worked well for me. Plus, I'm so big that I stand out. People are attracted to me because of my size, and I'm attracted to them because I'm curious. 
I was working the counter one day and this lady walked in and we got to talking. She was a Capitol Police officer. She told me a little about the job and urged me to apply. She told me they would have a booth at a career fair at Martin's Crosswinds. Martin's Crosswinds is this huge ballroom facility in Greenbelt, Maryland, where people in the D.C. area have all kinds of events, weddings, retirement balls. Then she said the magic words, and we get paid really well. I went to the career fair and talked to the Capitol Police. They told me the salary, and I said, they pay how much? The starting salary back then was $65,000. I was 23 or 24 years old, and they said you could work overtime and double that. I'm thinking to myself, man, if I work overtime, I could make $100,000 in a year? Sign me up. It took me a long time to get hired, almost a year. You have to do the physical and polygraph exam, and then they bring you in for a background check. There's a psychological check and a vision and hearing examination. Then I went through a long interview process. They checked out all my references. There was more waiting. Finally, I was accepted and learned I would be reporting to the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Glencoe, Georgia. Glencoe is really a town created by the government. In 1942, during World War II, the government put a naval air station on the land and called it Glencoe. The name was created by pushing together two parts of its location, Glen County. When it was no longer needed as an air station around 1974, the government turned it into the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. Everybody refers to it as Fletsy. The center is a town unto itself with its own zip code. It's located just northwest of Brunswick, Georgia, which is also in Glen County. Brunswick, as you may recall, is where an unarmed black man, Ahmad Arbery, was out for a morning run when he was gunned down by three white men who thought he looked suspicious. Fletsy is where all the federal law enforcement people train before they branch off into their own service. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, Border Patrol, Secret Service, FBI, and the rest. My class of Capitol Police officers did three months of training there before we returned to Maryland for three more months of training. Not long after I was hired by the Capitol Police, the Montreal Alouettes called my agent and invited me up again. I was making preparations to head to Fletsy. Maybe the third time with Montreal would be the charm, but I was madly in love with the woman and I had a chance at a career. I was ready to move on from football and I turned them down. I don't know what I was expecting, but Fletsy is a huge facility. It stretches out across 1,600 acres. It has classrooms, dormitories, and a dining hall that can serve more than 4,000 meals per day. It has 18 firearms ranges, including an indoor range complex with 146 separate firing points. In addition to that, it has eight semi-enclosed ranges with 200 places from which to shoot. Then they've got this complex of driver training courses where they teach you how to do high-speed chases and how to handle yourself and your car, like using it for protection when you pull up on an incident. As a part of the training, they made us lose control of the car and then figure out how to get control back. 
they built a whole fake neighborhood with 34 houses and other buildings that were equipped with video cameras to record our actions during point of entry exercises or room to room searches. We could watch the video later to learn how to fine tune what we were doing. It was deep. They had interviewing suites where we learned how to interrogate suspects. That's where we got to use what is called verbal judo. It's like martial arts applied to talking with people. There were mock courtrooms, computer forensic laboratories, and other laboratories for fingerprinting and identifying narcotics. I carpooled to Glencoe with a guy named Richardson Phileas. I didn't know anybody else there. We stayed in a hotel when we first got there. Usually, you stay in a dormitory, but the base was crowded and has a partnership with hotels. We were only five minutes away from the center. We would be in the center until we were finished for the day. Class normally ended at 4 p.m. They started with roll call at 7 a.m. The Capitol Police officers trained as a unit. There were about 40 of us. It was eight hours a day. Marksmanship, driving techniques, police tactics, situational awareness. One of the biggest things they drilled us on was the law. There was a lot of that, over and over again. There was a lot to learn. We did a ton of running and conditioning. It definitely got us into shape. It was a different shape than football. That was a huge adjustment for me. We went on runs for two or three miles every day. As a football player, as a lineman, I only had to be fast over a short distance, maybe 10 to 20 yards. So those three-mile runs were a struggle. The bad thing was that I was one of the squad leaders. As a squad leader, I was supposed to be at the front of the squad. On those long runs, somebody else had to be in the front. After three months in Glencoe, our class moved north to train for another three months at a different Fletzy. This one in Sheltonham, Maryland. It's about 15 miles from downtown Washington, which is not far from where I grew up. They trained lots of people from more than 75 agencies in the area. Our training still included running and conditioning and staying in shape. And they had firing ranges so we could keep up our marksmanship. But I guess more than anything, we were learning local law. We knew federal law, but we were operating in the District of Columbia, and we had to learn how laws applied in the district versus how they applied federally. For instance, federally, marijuana is illegal, but in D.C., it's not. What about the use of deadly force? Federal law says if they are running away, you may be covered when shooting at a felon. But your department may have a policy that says you can't do that. Federally, you can fire a warning shot, but Capitol Police regulations say no warning shot. By then, I had changed. I was obviously in better shape. I had learned all these driving and shooting skills, and I was certainly schooled in federal law. But I also noticed that I was more aware of my surroundings. When I entered a room, I immediately looked around for the exits. I noticed which way a door opened and closed, outward or inward. I looked at the elevator buttons differently because I now knew that the star button would take me to the nearest exit. I saw the world differently. I was more vigilant. I didn't automatically see a person as a bad guy, but I made up scenarios in my head. What if somebody pops out of that door and starts shooting? What is my plan of escape? Or how would I attack him? How would I get people out in an emergency? 
I graduated with my class in June 2009, class 161. The graduation took place in the Russell Senate office building. There were about 40 other officers. My wife, Danielle, was there. We got married just days earlier on May 22, 2009. My parents, Harry and Joyce Dunn, were there. I don't remember much about that day. At the time, it just felt like another day, nothing too significant. But I do remember that I graduated on a Friday and started at the Capitol the following Monday. I've touched on this, but I quickly learned that one of my main jobs at the Capitol is to protect your right to free speech. The public sees the huge historic demonstrations that occur at the Capitol, but we also have lots of smaller demonstrations. There seems to be something going on almost daily. In my time here, we have had people come to the Capitol and just read the Bible 24 hours a day for a week, which I've learned is the maximum length of time for a legal demonstration. We've had demonstrations for D.C. statehood, people protesting genocide and oppression in other countries, a protest to ban infant circumcision, a real-life Nazi passing out Nazi propaganda to people walking around the building, minimum wage protests, protests to raise taxes, protests to lower taxes, protests for Obamacare, protests against Obamacare, protests against Scientology. It's surprising sometimes what gets people going. Recently, I saw two women walking around with a sign that read, Thank you for everything, Capitol Police. That felt nice. We are starting to see more of that. Anybody can protest, but there are rules for demonstrations that need to be followed. If you don't want to get arrested or have your stuff torn down. All of it is explained in the application that everybody has to fill out in order to get permission for organized demonstrations. For instance, there are designated areas around the Capitol where people can protest. There's a map on the government website that shows where those areas are. And you can't protest inside the Capitol under any circumstances. Another rule, when demonstrators use loudspeakers, they have to be pointed away from the building. Demonstrators can have all the flags or props they want, but they have to be freestanding. There are lots of things you can't do. For instance, you can't offer anything for sale. You can't ask for contributions and you can't advertise. Also, you can't have any form of shelter, camping equipment, tents, sleeping bags, or bedrolls. I learned after being on the job that some demonstrators want to get arrested because they want to emphasize the importance of their issue. We get tipped off in some cases because it says on the application how many people they have and that they plan to get arrested. In those cases, it's easy for us because we make preparations to arrest them and take them to jail. In other cases, and that's based on the application, we get a note that says, intentions unknown. Those can be a little worrisome because you don't know what's going to happen. Somebody could get out of hand and we would have to respond. Some people come to the Capitol and just push the boundaries. We had one guy, Revis Grogan, who would come and stand outside the Capitol and shout all day, his issue was abortion. He said this one thing over and over. Abortion is the murdering of little babies. Save the babies. And he's shouting it as loud as he can. I can hear it even now. He did it so much, it just stayed in my brain. 
He would shout that from everywhere around the Capitol. He was on the House side. He was on the Senate side, day after day after day. He was shouting so loud and so much that he brought lemons and bottles of honey with him and mixed them together in a tonic to soothe his throat so he could shout some more. I guess the tonic helped because he would be there all day shouting at the Capitol, exercising his First Amendment right. It was irritating, but that was his constitutional right, freedom of speech. But for some reason, Revis started to push it too far. One day, some members of Congress were outside the Capitol giving a press conference. I have no idea what they were talking about. They do this all the time. And when they do, we have to police off the area. Revis was out there screaming and yelling. No matter how annoying, it is the right of an individual. All of a sudden, he sprinted toward the podium where the Congress people were speaking. I mean, he was flat out running in a threatening manner. Capitol Police Officer Ty Bond and I took off after him and intercepted him before he got to the podium. We put him in handcuffs and led him away before anything could happen. I don't know what was happening with Revis, but not long after that, in October 2012, he was arrested after he ran onto the field during a National League Division Series playoff game between the Cincinnati Reds and the San Francisco Giants. He was holding a sign. On one side, it read, anti-abortion. On the other side was a photograph of Mitt Romney, who he was endorsing for the presidency against then-President Barack Obama. We arrested him a few months later during Obama's second inauguration. Revis climbed 40 feet up a tree where he wasn't allowed to be and started shouting and hollering during the ceremony. He had already been arrested for demonstrating inside the Supreme Court. Revis was from Los Angeles. The judge banned him from coming to D.C. until it was time for him to stand trial on misdemeanor charges. As I said, as officers, we act without allegiance to party or politics. For instance, we arrested a guy, Manuel Oliver, in March 2023, after he disrupted a congressional hearing, particularly when Republican Congressman Pat Fallon of Texas, with whom he disagreed, was speaking. Oliver's son, Joaquin, was 17 when he was killed on Valentine's Day five years earlier in the mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Joaquin was one of 17 people murdered in the shooting. Another 17 were injured. Fortunately for Oliver, he received a citation arrest, which means he wasn't taken to jail, but he was wrestled to the ground and handcuffed. Do I feel for Oliver and his wife, Patricia? Sure, I do. Do I think we need to do more to control gun violence? Most definitely. Still, democracy, no matter which side you are on, must be allowed to proceed. In the beginning, being a Capitol Police officer was just a job to me. I mean, it was a good job. It paid well. It was an important job. It was a challenging job. But it was just a job. I was just trying to learn the ropes. I was more concerned about the logistics, learning where I was going to park my truck and trying to understand what my supervisors wanted from me. When we had those large demonstrations, my attitude was, take y'all asses home. I want to play PlayStation. I want to go to the gym. I was starstruck too. The first time I saw Nancy Pelosi, 
and some of the other Congress people and senators. I knew they were powerful and important people. They had motorcades and reporters and cameras swarmed around them. I would see these motorcades with 10 or 12 limousines and I had a hard time focusing on my assignment because I got caught up in the celebrity of the job. We had all kinds of celebrities coming through. I met Angelina Jolie. We talked and took a picture together. I took a photograph with Paris Hilton too. I saw John Stewart a bunch of times. He was always at the Capitol. I saw Mark Cuban and Jennifer Lopez and Simone Biles and the US gymnastics team. There's a photograph that officers kept of Shaquille O'Neal when he came to the Capitol. He looked like a mountain compared to the officers who were passing the wand over him at the security checkpoint. Michael Jackson's visit to the Capitol is legendary. Some officers said Michael moonwalked through the metal detector. One day, a bunch of NBA players came to the Capitol in one of those long motorcades. I think it was the members of the NBA Players Association and they were meeting with Congress. One of the players in the group was Amari Stoudemire. Amari was a great NBA player, rookie of the year right out of high school, a six-time NBA All-Star, and five times voted to the All-NBA team. I was on my post that day. I recognized him, and he recognized me. We played against each other twice when he was at Mount Zion Christian Academy in Durham, North Carolina, and I was at Surrattsville. We talked about old times and laughed about dating some of the same girls and caught up on old acquaintances. It was good to see him. But I was letting myself get distracted by the glitz associated with the occupation. I wasn't really doing my job well. I was looking at the motorcade and I wasn't looking for the threat. My eyes were open, but I wasn't looking at the right thing. Over time, however, I matured and began to understand more about what my job was really about. Some of it, I guess, is a function of youth. As a trainer, it's my job to bridge what the newbies learned at Fletzy and what we do every day. When I talk to the younger people coming onto the force, I find that they really don't look at the news. They don't inform themselves regarding the things that are happening, including at the Capitol that affect them. I was like them when I first came onto the force. As you grow older and take on more responsibilities, things change. You start cooking for the family, and you start paying attention to what things cost. Why are eggs so expensive? You start learning about inflation. You have to deal with the school system for your kids, medical care for your family, and maybe even your parents. Your plans for the weekend become less important. You're not necessarily asking, where's the party at? Life experiences make you pay attention. One of the people who really helped me in my transition is Corey Cumberlander, who's a training officer with the Capitol Police. Corey is a guy you want to hang around with any time, but he is always serious when he is on the job. I watched his mannerisms and how he carried himself, always on point, on task, just a consummate professional. Another officer I learned a lot from is Tyrone Bond. He's the guy I arrested Revis Grogan with. Ty is from DC. I consider him a friend and a supporter. He and Corey were both in the Army. Ty is about my age, and our kids are about the same age. Like Corey, Ty takes his job seriously. I love watching them talk to people. They might laugh and joke with people at the Capitol, but at the same time, they are collecting information. They are human beings, 
and they treat other people as human beings. Too often in policing, we don't treat people as human beings. But even if Ty and Corey are dealing with some crazy people coming to the Capitol, there's satellites following me. They aren't dismissive. I noted that from day one, and I appreciate that. If I learned anything from those two, it's that as Capitol Police officers on the first responders unit, we are the ones who interact with the public the most. Consequently, we must learn to communicate and do it well. We could stand there like statues and not talk to anybody, like the guards at Buckingham Palace in London, or we could engage. Corey and Ty taught me that talking to people was part of our duty, and it is also a great way to look for clues of a threat. As a training officer, I tell my people the same thing. We get 2.1 million people at the Capitol every year, so you have to be on your toes. You have to pay attention. We get the most tourists and demonstrators when the weather is warm. We call it protest season. Most people are just tourists, but you're chatting them up because you never know, and it just beats standing around. It also works for me because I like talking to people, and it's also my way of learning about different people and what they care about. Hey, buddy, how's it going? What brings you to the Capitol? Nice family. Oh, that's not your family? Or you see a demonstration. Some of it is curiosity. Some of it is reconnaissance. Hey, I've seen that flag before. What does it stand for? Really? I've never heard of that. What is that about? Tell me about it. Or people may be doing something wrong. You don't have to be rude. You just have to get them on the right path. You can't stand there. No, ma'am, I'm sorry, but that's off limits. But you can stand over there. People love options. People want to know what they can do, not what they can't do. Sometimes we have fun with the public. We just make up shit to have a laugh. Sir, what's your question? What's the statue at the top? The real answer is that it's a 19 and a half foot statue of a woman called the Statue of Freedom. But that's the employee of the month. I sometimes say. Every month, they put up a new one. They're usually out of date by the time they get up there because it takes so long to make them. By that time, there's usually another employee of the month, but we leave it up there for a month anyway before we put the other one up. The statue? One of the interesting things about the statue is that it turns. When the sun hits it in the eyes, it gradually swivels. Nobody wants the sun in their eyes, so to keep it realistic, it turns. Keep looking at it and you might see it. It's just fun and games, but those protesters and all those people, day in and day out, help me grow in my political thinking. As we do our jobs at the hundreds of protests, we hear their slogans, we hear their chants, and you ask questions, sometimes to the people demonstrating and sometimes to yourself. Why is the minimum wage so important that you are here? Why do you think a woman's right to have an abortion is wrong? People like the late Congressman John Lewis would demonstrate knowing they would be arrested and go to jail. We knew they were going to jail. Why would these people, business leaders, congressional men and women, activists, and regular citizens go to jail for an issue? You talk to them. They talk to you. Somebody tells you they are taking half of their daily pill because they need to stretch it out because of the cost. Somebody else says, they go to work every day, maybe work two jobs, and they still can't afford what they need. 
You read about what they're talking about. You stand there, demonstration after demonstration. Some people come year after year because they believe something has to change. They don't come just from D.C. or Maryland or Virginia. They come from all over the country because they want the people inside the Capitol to listen to them and make changes. In the end, you understand that people need to be able to come to the U.S. Capitol and express their displeasure. You understand that your job is to protect the rights of the people in front of you. And you also realize that we, the Capitol Police, are protecting the people inside who have the responsibility of serving the interests and the concerns of those people gathered outside, right in front of you. And you understand what you do is more than just a job. When you took the job, you took an oath to protect these people, all of them. You have a great responsibility. You made a commitment. Now, you are obligated to make good on that commitment every day, no matter what. Catherine Massey Book Club, Context of White Supremacy. This book is not very long, so we will be done very shortly. Uh, We just finished Chapter 2. We'll pick up next Thursday. Chapter 3, The Insurrection. That'll be for next week. But yeah, that'll be Chapter 3, and there are only nine chapters total in the book. So we will be done quickly. But again, we will be reading this book on January 6, 2024. The number 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, Z's mommy retired firefighter uh, you all will be first in the queue until justice at gmail.com missed folks first time around uh, let's see see's mommy did you have commentary to share should be with us can I be heard yes ma'am uh, greetings everyone um, so far it's an interesting book I also wanted to or the line that stuck out to me too in the beginning was when he was saying, um, this is not one of the countries where citizens are beaten, shot, killed, or disappeared for expressing their beliefs. Um, I thought that was interesting because just in the next page, he says, um, we watched as our cities burned from the 1960s to the 1990s, torn apart by racial injustice and strife and as hundreds of mostly black people were shot and killed by police, which I would say is the contradiction from the sentence he had in the earlier um, pages. And I, it just reminds me of how, like, a lot of non-white people can exist with, like, a lot of contradictory thoughts because that's kind of how the system programs us. Another part that was interesting was he was saying... Um, a lot of people immigrate to America, and then the question is, why? And then he says, because it's America. Well, that's not really an answer, and it, it kind of, maybe there's not a lot of critical thinking in that probably those countries have been made very inhospitable. Um, so I thought that was interesting. And then when he talks about his football um in college, and he was saying that 
when he was close to 330 pounds and how hard he worked and how there was like winter workouts and then spring break workouts and then summer workouts. It just seems like such a lot of time wasted, a lot of non-white, especially black people's time wasted on sports that are so not really constructive or even healthy. And it's all to really just like make a lot of white people money and entertain large crowds of white people. And you just think about how time is finite and how he's spending so much of his time doing these types of incredibly unconstructive activities. Um, Oh, and then he talks about um, when he's playing football with another player and he says, I love demolishing people on the line. I love the feeling when me and another lineman double team blocked a guy and put him on his ASS. Afterwards, we would dab each other up. I just thought that was really disappointing. Like, it's it's kind of sad that, I don't know, they would get camaraderie from, like, causing pain to another person. And it's just, like, it just reminds me of, like, kind of, like, the slaves and the gladiators and the Mandingo fighting. It just seems really, really incorrect. Um, and then another, he's like, federal law says if you're running away, you may be covered when shooting at a felon. This is when he's talking about when he's learning the different laws to become a capital police officer. I, I was interested in what he meant by you may be covered when shooting at a felon who's running away, like, Discovered mean like you won't be prosecuted. Discovered mean that like I I was just interested in what that means. I guess I'll have to look into that because I don't understand any scenario where it's justifiable to shoot at someone who's running away from you. Um. Oh, and then I thought it was really interesting when he was talking about the different demonstrations that happen at the Capitol. I did not know people could apply for to demonstrate, like, a job application, and then they can apply to say, like, how many people they expect to get arrested. To me, that's, that feels like refinement of the system in that you're, you're giving... It's like this idea that you have a choice or something, like, oh, you can demonstrate but you have to do it the way we want you to, and you have to fill out an application, and you have to get approved for it. I just find it really odd, and I think it takes away from the nature of what a demonstration would be. I never knew that was a real thing. Um, I think he says that um, there was one person who disrupted a speaker uh, who I think it was like a someone in Congress and he had to arrest him. I think it was um, the per- the father of uh, uh, the Stoneman, um, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas um, shooting victim. I just, again, like, I would have liked him to expand on that. What does he mean by disrupted? Like, was he just yelling? Was he, I, I don't understand how that's ground, that, or that requires someone to be arrested. I thought that was interesting. Um, again, I guess because they're not demonstrating in the way that, you know, was applied and approved for to be demonstrating. Um, 
And then the the last part that I, I find that two things that I find odd about his writing is like the cursing. It seems like unnecessarily put into the book. I I'm interested. I'm one, trying to figure out like who is this book meant for, or who does he think like the reader is or should be. I guess I'll have to like listen to some of his interviews. And then there's like at the like the last paragraph that was read, he says like you made a commitment. Now you are obligated to make good on that commitment every day, no matter what. I find it really odd that he keeps going from first to third to second person because I don't read a lot of books where it's in second person and they keep saying you as if they're talking about me, but it's like I'm not a police officer. I don't work for the Capitol Police. Why does he keep saying you? And I feel like he's almost, like, disassociating himself when he says that. Like, I don't understand if he's trying to make us feel like we're him or if he's trying to say that, um, like, if he wants to separate himself from his job. I just find it really odd, and I don't think it's, like, something I've seen a lot because he switches back and forth, and he brings it up a lot more when he talks about his job. Um, that's all I have to say for now. Thank you. Much obliged, Z's mom. The perspectives they they do switch. I said that it's peculiar at minimum. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't think that's common. I mean, we've had over a decade of a book club. Do you hear that frequently? Do we hear that from Sue Klebold? Was she doing that sort of you and we? thought about how I have to I don't remember her because she was very aware that everybody didn't have the same thought process about Columbine and yeah who did he intend who did he think was going to be the audience for this book um, yeah I'm not with the Capitol Police either so yeah it's we'll have to see if the perspective if that changes and it could be he has acknowledged that he was traumatized through all of this so maybe there is that bit of distancing right as opposed to at times when he's talking about being an enforcement officer as opposed to saying I signed up for this and blah 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 to switch to say you that you know some people do that to create distance where there's some trauma so lots of things let's see other folks that we missed totally I do want to say there is a whole book the second bombing that we heard about in 1983 excuse me 1983 at the Capitol building there's a whole book that was just published about that Tonight we bomb the U.S. Capitol, the explosive story of M-19, America's first female terrorist group. These are all white women. And, and, and. Part one, New Sisterhood, chapter three, The White Edge. Chapter five. America KKK uh, is trying to lynch me. Chapter 6 Death to the Clan. I'll stop there, but it seems like racism might be a big and, 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 I <laughs> just found this today, and apparently. 
Asada Shakur was in some way affiliated with these folks because she's mentioned very before the book even gets started. She is mentioned with the others. But Asada Shakur, we know her, right? Read her book, Asada Biography Kings. But we read that like, dang, might have to read this one. See what they're talking about. All white women to go bomb the Capitol. Why isn't that known about? Uh, let's see other folks that we missed totally Irie did you have commentary to share first portion of standing my ground hello have you heard yes ma'am salutations so I caught the second half and I was just pondering to Okay, I have a note about programmability. And to me, when a person plays football, you know, they're receiving input commands or programs, you could say, to play football. And I think he played, I think his position is a defensive position. Don't beat me up because I don't know for sure. So I was interested in the occupation change not really the occupation changed but the mindset didn't really change you went from playing defense to defending and he expresses he's defending democracy and he has a this it sounded uh like a rote um statement about what how he's supposed to defend democracy and it sounds like it's something that he was programmed with. So I'm just wondering how programmable football made him for the job that he, you know, the job as a cop. I may be thinking too deep. Um, Glencoe, I don't know how many of those cities are in Georgia. I do believe he said Georgia. But Right now, there's a city that people have died at protesting. They're calling it Cop City. And it's going to be one of the largest training facilities, and it's again in Georgia. So I'm seeing, now I understand a trend of paramilitary training happening in that state. Um, and his description of it, you know, the the plentifulness of resources, space, and opportunity for military and paramilitary to train, you know, gather supply, convene amongst each other, and become, again, more programmable, right, in order to do their job. And I'm sure that there, like he said, there's, there's amenities to make you comfortable while you train in there, so... It's probably kind of nice if I'm thinking about it, this Glencoe situation. I was interested that the team in Canada told him that they had too many Americans and they, you know, they were, it's convenient for white people to call you American when they get ready. But then when you're here, you're black again, you know. Still, um, I don't know if that was a valid reason, but I'm also curious if he would have been a 
European American would they have let him go? Um, because they did say statistically his playing was better than the other person that they decided to keep. So they may have compromised if he was white. I think it's, you know, I heard the importance of situational awareness as a skill for all of us. Um, the particular detail, not just seeing the exit, but seeing how the door opens, which I didn't think about that, but I'm like, yeah, that is something to pay attention to. I do kind of look for that, like emergency exits, and it's obvious you can see if you have to push out or if it has a knob, but you may think something swings open one way, but it actually swings another, you know, window or door. So I thought that was good. Asking more questions to pass time, but also to find out if you're in a situation that's going to become escalated. Just reiterating the compensatory code of asking more questions, you know. And I was curious to, I don't know because I didn't hear the first chapter, but I was curious to find out, did he have a definition of democracy? I heard you say that you were going to ask, or you should have asked, non-white, the non-white guy last time is what his definition of racism was. So that made me think, hmm, does this man have a definition of democracy, the thing that he sounds very adamant about defending, you know, as part of his job? And it sounds personal, too. So that is all. Thank you. Much obliged, uh, Irie. Uh, the last non-white person we had on the program, I did ask if he had a definition for racism, and he did not. Uh, that has been a growing trend for a long time. Um, incidentally, the author for the book, Harry Dunn, he played on the offensive line, not defense, but he did talk about <clears throat> explicitly how uh, certain jobs, they looked to hire college athletes because they had a certain team mentality that they wanted and they said that they had the same sort of team mentality with how they operated their enterprise rent-a-car business so there, even though he didn't play defense there would still seem to be some element of uh, you've been trained to think or behave in a certain way uh, that will be very amendable uh, applicable to the same sort of training how we want you to conduct yourself here uh, and probably listening to a white person in charge I think we talked about that a lot with college athletics uh, it's going to be a white person, white coach white owner just like up in Canada nah buddy yeah we got we got our quota for Americans, I even snickered a bit because it's like dang that's a new one like you're American, they even got uh, one of the racist slurs is Canadian right? if you want to be racist Say, oh man, it's got so many Canadians in here. That's in Joe Fegan's book, Two Faced Racism, where they uh, some of the white people would include that as one of the slurs, right? That's even you can find that online too. But <clears throat> yeah, we we got we got our quota for Americans. Sorry, I'd be curious too. So if he had been classified as white, it would have been the same. Yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry, Chip. 
know you you are really killing it you've had an amazing camp and i mean man i put in about three or five good words for you i did all i could chip but yeah we got this old joker from toronto and he's as lame as can be but i mean you know what they say man we gotta have these certain number of canadians on the team so <sighs> sorry about that chip man you hang in there we'll catch you next year. like really mm. anywho um make sure I, I just wanted to say quickly one he said he got tryouts for the Washington Redskins I love 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 that he did not change this up to the Washington football team or the commanders or something I got a tryout for the Washington Redskins I love it and 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 the Buffalo Bills now they can do all the tackiness they want to and pull out some of the victims from the top shooting and oh no racism even Josh Allen says he's no racist <laughs> the white owner for the Buffalo Bills just got in trouble just like the former owner for the Redskins Dan Snyder when they were talking about hiring more black people and why don't you have coaches and got a big lawsuit about all it was right there hey, hey, hey you all don't like how we you get you an old African football league and all of that right there with Dan Snyder and all them anyway uh, he mentioned Joe uh, Joe Theismann having his career uh, ruined by Virginia great Lawrence Taylor, victim of white supremacy. He even mentioned Seattle great Warren Moon. I can't believe it. University of Washington alumnus. Uh, let's see. Uh, the Oh, they love demolishing people. I think Z's mommy said something about that. That is football, man. Violence. Gangsters. I love demolishing. Yeah, we love watching people get demolished. Grab him, Joe. Grab him, Lawrence to LT, man. Knock his Block off, kill that dude, man. That white culture, man. White culture. I said that we were reading Bill Russell's book this time last year since Lawrence Taylor got mentioned. They didn't even allow Negros to play middle linebacker. Remember that? He said that. They had to go through all that workplace racism. He said they can't have no Negro playing middle linebacker. You need brains to play line. You can't have no Lawrence Taylor playing Negro. I uh, say it took him a long time to get uh, hired. That reminded me we had the black male author for uh, worked for the Secret Service. The N word is no secret in the service. I think he said it took a long time for him to get hired, too. That's another one that reminded me that all you got all that nepotism and cronyism. He told us about where my great, 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 great grandpa worked for the police and my nephews and cousins and uncles. So does it take them? this curiously long time paperwork to go through and, you know you gotta wait for the dove to get back and you know see does the groundhog see it should do we have to do all that for them too it's just the nigga we still waiting on your drug results you know Leroy can make sure you get your medical clearance and you gotta talk to all of your relatives and neighbors everybody that you sold crack to we gotta cover all our bases It'll just be a few more months Leroy Workplace Racism Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, let's see. When he gave all the details about the training facility in Georgia, Ahmad Arbery, shout, uh, for the Fletzy facility and all of that, 
man, that reminded me, Neelyfoot, he said, white people go to the bottom of the ocean. We make a whole fake town so we can study how to lose control of the car and shootouts and all that. That's so when you be thinking about, we going to get rowdy. I'm going to get my firearm. I'm going to get my 22. Like, really, you got a whole town. You can go practice, lose control of the car, high speed chases and all of that. Really? Uh, oh, and they even did the verbal judo. They got a whole book called verbal judo. We read and talked about that one way back in the archives, 2012. They got a whole book, whole series of that, the art of verbal judo. Some of it on display right here at the context of white supremacy. I bet they got all kinds of updated pseudoscience and for real science at that laboratory now. Not AI. Oh my God. Drones and chatbots. Jesus. Uh, let's see. We talked about the discrepancies in the laws between the federal laws for cannabis in D.C. It's legal, been legal for nigh on a decade uh, in the District of Columbia, but still federally illegal. Uh, We had some folks who talked about that discrepancy and how that's enforced and all the rest of it. Um, When he said they had people coming there to protest a ban on infant circumcision, the lameness of Whitey. I do not care about what a small number of individuals classified as non-white are doing so-called circumcision uh, on the continent the masters of genital mutilation pause say anarcha the masters of female genital mutilation are classified as white and you brag about this J. Marion Sims We don't even have to get to the castrations and such. Now, he said there was a real-life Nazi passing out Nazi propaganda to people walking around the building. I was just stunned by, like, a real-life, like, really? They have such, like, wait a minute, did y'all? We saw Charlottesville and all of that, so, yeah, I, that one just gave me pause for, all right, real-life Nazi, yes, 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 uh. I don't know why this uh, Rivas fella couldn't just be like they mentioned a lot of arrests for this guy. He's upset Rivas about a whole lot of things, it seems. And he's coming out and storming. He's mad about President Obama and all the rest of it. Like, dang, uh, can you not get a longer jail sentence? Like he must be a white person for all of this. You get to keep come back and, and be a recidivist repeat offender for very powerful people you're disrupting white ball games and such like come on come on come on um and he climbed the tree even that he comes for the obama second inauguration how did he get up the tree they didn't have cameras and such out watching secret service agents out like what are you doing get down from that tree man what's wrong with you uh and then they banned him from dc i didn't even know you could be banned from a city I've never heard. I mean, I guess D.C. is special kind of property, but I've never. Can you be banned from like L.A.? Can they ban you from Wichita? <laughs> like, I've never heard that. Um, oh, man. I see the inf- infantilization of black people. He did say I had to go back and look at the transcript. He did say before January 6th, I was just I just want to talk about sports and new music. Entertainment. I said, good God. Like what? 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 Okay, he said it again. I 
take he's talking about all the protests, the real life Nazis and all the rest of it, female genital mutilation and all the rest. He said, take y'all asses home. I want to play PlayStation. I want to go to the gym. I was starstruck. And then he gets into all the celebrities. Entertainment. That's what they entertainment. No serious study. We are just little children watching TV and screens and video game time, Super Bowl time, all the bowls, reality TV, real housewives. That's what they just train us for in the videos and all that. Shake it. Yeah. He said they couldn't even dance. They got the music on and we can't even dance. (laughs) Man, come on. Come on. Turn off the TV, man. Reading more and put it in. And even when he mentioned powerful white people, he started with white politicians, Nancy Pelosi and such. These are people who are very powerful. Being white, period, is pretty powerful. But I mean, super powerful evil on the scale of white people. When he went to the black people, every single black person he named was an entertainer. Simone Biles, Shaquille O'Neal, Michael Jackson, entertainers, all of them. Nobody, you know. A politician, major entrepreneur, all of that. I guess Michael Jackson eventually, but still, like, oh, that's entertainment. The black people that built spaceships and all of that. I brought them in. And, uh, no. Uh, let's see. We said the young people, when I talk to the young people coming onto the force, I find they don't really look at the news. <sighs> they don't inform themselves regarding the things that are happening, including the capital that affect them. That goes about triple, I would say, for people classified as black. We are playing PlayStation 5, watching entertainment, Netflix, YouTube, TikTok. There's no serious about nothing. Serious about being not serious. Not informed, no reading, no research, just and just end up and end up being like that. Not while you're children. I mean, children are supposed to do childish things. There is never a discarding of that. And whoa, wait a minute. I work at the Capitol building. What is Nancy Pelosi up to today? Let me pay attention. What are they out here? They got the Nazi fella out here. Jesus Christ. Were you in Charlottesville talking about asking questions? Come on, man. I'm not up here. You work at the Capitol and I'm biding my time so I can go home and play Call of Duty. Mario Kart. Man. Boys. Gals not men and women let's see uh, the folks that we missed I just got confused uh, retired firefighter Lawrence did y'all have final comment before we wrap up oh, I didn't get off uh, the folks that we missed did y'all have comment before we wrap up yes I do may I be heard that's Lauren yes ma'am um, yes sir uh, thank you for allowing me to speak again and in this section, I I took plenty of notes. Well, actually, not as many as I usually do. Um, I I did highlight like four or five times when he was listing injuries for the football players, and I was just thinking, you know, what it must be like to do something for pay that you could just be, you know, get such a serious injury like that any day, and your ability to pay bills would just be over. Um, man, that's not, that's not stable. Um, and then, um, when, uh, when he's in Canada and they tell him, you know, turn in his playbook and the guy then tells him, Harry, you're doing great. You're having a great camp and you belong here. 
This has nothing to do with your play. This is business. We've got too many Americans on the team. You're better than the other guy, but he's a Canadian. I translated that to he's white. And also, you know, this came up in the last uh, segment, but racism is a business. And he was probably telling the truth on that one. Um, When he was talking about uh, Glencoe, he said it's located just northwest of Brunswick, Georgia, which is also in Glen County. Brunswick, as you may recall, is where an unarmed black man, Ahmaud Arbery, was out for a morning run when he was gunned down by three white men who thought he looked suspicious. Well, um, job I had uh, before this one, white man trained me when he was a little boy. He lived in uh, Brunswick, Georgia. He told me a story. Is it, is it okay if I tell it? It won't be too long. Let's hear it. Okay. Um, he says when he was in elementary school, he was living with his grandmother. And he asked his grandma if he could bring a friend home after school. And she says, okay. But then, you know, when he got back to the house after school and his grandma saw that the little boy was black, she took both of them. They got in the car. She drove that little black boy to his residence, walked him up to the door and explained to that black child's mother what happened. The black lady then apologized and my trainer and his white grandmother left. So, um, when white people like Paul Kicks say they're not like the other white people, the ones that are called racist, I always remember that. Um, there was another part where he said he was talking about that Revis guy, and he said he was flat out running in a threatening manner. Is that something that law enforcement says, running in a threatening manner? How is it defined, number one, you know, running in a threatening manner? And... I was also wondering, like, do black people get to exercise or train for a marathon? Is that threatening? Um, I, I, too, noted all the rules about the protest. He said anybody can protest, but. And then he listed a lot of rules. That was interesting. And then he also said, as I said, as officers, we act without allegiance to party or politics. BGQ, I think racist collectively never forget the importance of their racial classification. I think we, non-white people, are the ones who don't understand its significance. Um, white hairdressers, uh, doctors, yoga instructors, lawyers, students, construction workers, plumbers, bakers, pilots, they function as racist man, racist woman, and racist child, and they don't forget it. So that's what I think about that. Um, he said they might laugh and joke with people at the Capitol, but at the same time, they're collecting information. They are human beings and they treat other people as human beings. Too often in policing, we don't treat people as human beings. All right. Well, if you were a police officer, you would be humane, but these are law enforcement officers. And, and, and also, I don't know the racial classification of the two people he was talking about, okay? But I do think it's constructive to gather information, and I think it's very common to treat non-white people like they're not people. I'm not going to use that term, human beings, but that's the training in a system of racism, white supremacy. Or is that's the training for white people to mistreat non-white people? 
can also for non-white people to mistreat non-white people. That is what we're taught to do. He then he t- he talked about that um like when he was telling people he said uh, this is the quote you can't stand there no ma'am I'm sorry but that's off limits but you can stand over there people love options people want to know what they can do not what they can't do sometimes we have fun with the public we just make up shit to have a laugh okay if he knows people don't like to be told what to do why is the first thing he says ma'am you can't stand there. I am not an expert uh, with speech or anything, but there's other ways to say that. You can say, ma'am, they have rules about where people or protesters are allowed to stand. You can stand over there or you can stand over there. That's that's a way to give options without telling somebody what they can't do and making up shit to have a laugh. It's acceptable for law enforcement officers to lie to you. I think we should not forget that. They are not obligated to tell you the truth. And the language, it is um, a gratuitous amount of profanity in the text. And I had noticed the, you know, the perspective switching, first person, third person. I had noticed that. But he didn't write this book. It says Harry Dunn with Ron Harris. So he didn't write it all himself. I mean, he had assistance by this Ron Harris, so. I think we should take that into account, too. And I guess Ron Harris would be the professional writer. And that's all I have for now. Thank you for allowing me to speak. Much obliged. Lauren, he does have a helper ghostwriter, although I think this might be a first where Ron Harris, I think, is a black dude. Like generally, I was even thinking here, like, oh, gosh, he got some suspected racist to come in and help write. But I think... Ron Harris is a black dude. Be that as it may, but uh, and he even talks in that same uh, audio snippet interview that I played at the beginning. Mr. Dunn talks about some of the uh, conflicts, not fisticuffs, but I mean disagreements that he had with Mr. Harris and the editing process and saying, you know, I don't talk that way and I don't, I'd be curious to know which aspects of it he felt were not close to his authentic voice. Uh, I know he did make a point of saying that the profanity is authentic. That's how he talks. So, you know, apparently in the athletic world, yes, there is quite a bit of that sort of colorful language, we'll call it. Even that, I won't say that sort of profane language, because Mr. Fuller does have in the 10 stops, no cursing. Uh, Let's see. Oh, I forgot. Rest of our email. Let's see. Chapter two, James Madison. I accepted it. Oh, we got that part. Number two, Brunswick, Georgia. Ahmad Arbery, 2020 census, 30.9% white, 56.2% black. Three, when I talk to young people coming onto the force, I find that they don't look at the news. I think we were a little more interested in keeping up with the news when I was young back in the 60s and 70s, even as a teenager compared to today's youth. We read newspapers, watched the evening news, both local and national, on a daily basis. Maybe it's due to the fact that we did not have as many distractions, cable, TV, streaming, social media, internet, smartphones, etc. There are so many more options, and maybe if they had Netflix and PS5 when you were a toddler, maybe you all wouldn't have checked the news as much then either. But that does seem to be a major... seems like even Mr. Fuller check the news, watch the news a lot more than people 
who could do all that stuff easily on their flipping watch now. Anyway, uh, retired firefighter. Last one. Did you have commentary to share? Yes, sir. Greetings, everyone. Uh, the first half, uh, I can recall uh, uh, commentary uh, on, uh, and it's, it's, I've heard it from a lot of people about uh, people leaving out of this part of the world called the United States, where he mentions he mentions about uh, uh, he he has them here about him nobody leaving here. And uh, I would say that uh, there has been uh, a history of non-white people uh, leaving here to go other places with the idea in mind of thinking that they're going to uh, find someplace better. Uh, I can mention names, but I'm not going to mention names, uh, not a lot of them anyway, uh, uh, but uh, some, some of them are quite uh, known names in, uh, in history. And even even uh, today, uh, as far as leaving with the idea in mind of seeking uh, land that they can uh, produce food food on land, like in Africa, that sort of thing, uh, that seems to be uh, something that a lot of non-white people, not a lot, but some non-white people are doing, uh, as well as even, even black males. I've even heard about black males leaving here with the idea in mind of... Uh, of uh, uh, for for uh, female uh, contact or wives. Uh, number two, uh, uh, entertainment has certainly. I wrote down entertainment has certainly diminished the ambitions of a lot of black males uh, hoping to become rappers uh, professionally, football, basketball. Uh, that is certain. It was. It wasn't really that way when I was uh, a young fellow uh, teenager, uh, but it certainly is now. I, I've actually, during my period of time coaching, noticed the change uh, in and around in the eighties. Uh, it, it. I have here. It is true that some law enforcement and fire departments do have good retirement. Uh, but on the other end, uh, the hiring practices of a lot of those uh, uh, businesses are, are very poor when it comes to hiring black people. Uh, uh, number four, apparently chatting didn't work in Buffalo, New York. Uh, he was mentioning about uh, chatting to uh, some of the visitors that come to uh, his place of employment uh, and uh that was my thought in mind when he was making that comment. Uh, but I do have here, uh, it does make, it does make, does, he did have a point by, by, you know, striking up conversations with people. That is a good way of, uh, intel. Uh, number five, uh, I would have to think about all of that, uh, commitment and, uh, and, uh, protecting, protection, making vows. And whatnot, uh, when it comes to, uh, the jobs like, uh, law enforcement as well as, uh, the fire department. Uh, I did not, uh, make a vow at all. Uh, not even from a standpoint of a, of a ceremony, let alone talking about raising your hand. I didn't have that at all, uh, when I was, uh, 
on the fire department or in the early part when you take you supposed to quote unquote take a a uh, uh vow. So I, I never did do that. Uh last but not least, uh I remember uh the connection uh some jobs hire people based on playing sports. Uh that that does have make some have some sense in it, but uh I was always tagged uh on my time with the fire department as not being a team player. Uh and the only people who made that comment were white people. Uh so uh that did not make me sad at all. And that's all I have to say. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida, not a team player. Uh, we will pick up next Thursday, uh, last Thursday of the calendar year. We will pick up right at the beginning of Chapter 3. We'll be here tomorrow, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, neutralizing workplace racism and Saturday. Compensatory call-in, wrap-up, so-called holiday weekend. E. Anyway, much obliged for folks tuned in, hopefully worthy of your Thursday evening, helping you get through the wacky December. Uh, sobriety would be best. He talked about going to those parties and drinking on campus. I think I do remember us consuming alcohol actually on the campus, not just while we were college students, but actually on the college campus. Yes, I do remember that. And I think the night of decadence that they just had down in Houston, I think that was actually on the college campus as well. Anyway, sobriety would be bad. Hey, that's also in the book on CTE that you don't want young people whose brain computer is still developing. You don't really want them playing tackle football. That's bad for the brain and consumption of alcohol. Cannabis talked about also bad for the brain. Sobriety would be best. They'll have those checkpoints out probably today through the end of the year. They will have sobriety checkpoints out. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Cow signing out, no name calling. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.